Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Mr. John Ravakey, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. It's great to be here again, Robert. I've really, really enjoyed this and uh, rereading Plato's uh, Critique of Impure Reason with you and, and, and dialoguing with you about it has, has been really wonderful. So thank you for that. I completely echo what you have to say about that. Um, in prepare, you know, I've set aside three hours each day to prepare for these conversations. Yeah. And yeah, they're both really enjoyable. Just rereading the work and then actually having the dialogue with you and seeing it, you know, through your eyes to some extent. It's really, really just a, a rewarding, fulfilling experience. So um, I hope the audience finds a lot of value in this as well. Yes. Um, so today we're going to go through chapter five and the last chapter, which is called the CODA, C-O-D-A. Yeah. And chapter five is titled, The Truth is Defenseless, and has a subtitle, or how the truth viewed as indemonstrably and thus indefensibly good provides a response to the sophistic logic of violence. Yes, I thought that was just an excellent subtitle. Um, so as is usual here, I'll just start rolling with an excerpt. Um, and I'm on page 229 for this one. Okay, let me just get there. Great. And Schindler writes, for every real being, there are three things that are, that are necessary if knowledge of it is to be acquired. First, the name. Second, the definition. Third, the image. Knowledge comes forth. And in the fifth place, we must put the object itself, the knowable and truly real being. Yes. Now, these five levels... I think he revisits throughout the rest of this chapter. Yes, he does. He does. Um, and at the, the bottom of this paragraph, he also writes, from this perspective, a definition like a name or an image 
will provide not an endpoint but a stepping stone toward the final goal, namely yeah. knowledge itself. Yes. So um, maybe if you just speak to those five levels um, of knowing, because maybe this maps on to your four Ps to some extent. I'm not exactly sure, but um, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on this opening. Yeah, that, that that's a really good question. Uh, although I do think the question of the images uh, comes up more in uh, the coda uh, of the restoring the appearances. So maybe we can put off the discussion of the images and the imaginal until we do the coda. Um, yeah, so the name and the definition, the name and the definition would fall under for me, like the, the concept and the proposition, two parts of the propositional. And then it's interesting that, right, you move through the image, which like I say, we'll talk about later, but I think that has to do with um, the imaginal and perspectival knowing. And then knowledge comes, comes forth. And that's really interesting when, when you think about it, because uh, first of all, as Schindler rightly points out, Plato doesn't see knowledge arising in the conclusion of a definition, which is how we sort of tend to think of it today the sort of definitive grasp on the thing. There is something that comes beyond that. Now, I think what could be helpful here is a really important book by Moline, who argues that very often what we translate as knowledge in Plato, episteme, where we get epistemology from, um, is better translated as understanding. In fact, his book is called Plato's Theory of Understanding. And I take it that that is, what um, Schindler is going to do, and what I mean by that is Schindler starts to get this discussion about, you know, all of the implications that follow from something, all the consequences, and that's very important. But then there has to be that which, well, as we've been talking about the through line, the integration, that draw, that's the absolute for all those relatives, the, that, that is how it is in itself and all of that. So if that's right, and it seems to comport well with how Schindler proceeds in the chapter, I would say that what comes forth is knowledge in the sense of understanding. And what's interesting about that for me, and this goes back to Moline and also Gonzalo's work and others, is the most important, and I'm almost, I have to use this word and undermine it, the most important implication of what one knows is not itself, you know, the a logical implication of another proposition. It's, um, it's something that's been coming out in current philosophy of science and psychology. And I'll, I'll sort of put it in a bit of a slogan to try it. You know, knowledge is about evidence, but understanding is about relevance. Um, so when, notice when we ask if somebody understands something, uh, this was a pro, uh, point made by Smedlin. We ask them first, you know, for make sure they can do synonyms. That's like the name of the thing. So I say some term, do you understand? And then first I'll ask you for a synonym. That's like, give me another name for it. And then I'll ask you, you know, what contradicts it or what's implied by it? And now those are all the things we've been discussing. And then Smedlin said, 
But then there's what's relevant to it or how is it relevant to other things? And that's when right, you're starting to grasp the significance of something above and beyond right, the relations of logical implication to it. So you, you can see the name and the proposition coming out there. And then we move into understanding. Now, here's the thing I've argued repeatedly elsewhere, extensively in publication in the series. So I'm not going to remake the argument here, but it's a crucial argument. Relevance is not a propositional property. It's not part of the logical syntactic structure. It's all right of a proposition. Relevance is presupposed by representation. It's presupposed by inference, et cetera, et cetera. So when you move into understanding, you're now moving into the non-propositional significance of something. Now, as soon as you move into the non-propositional significance, you are then trying to, right, hopefully, if you want intelligibility, find the melody through all of those. You're trying to find the through line. And then that's the ecstatic element. That through line is the call to you to conform yourself to that which is not any aspect or property of a thing or perspective on it, but the through line from all of them and always calls you into the, that inexhaustible nature of the reality of the thing and how it transcends you. And that for me is when you are in the act of conforming to the reality of the thing in itself. So what I've said sort of builds on everything we've talked about before. I've brought in a bit of, uh, a bit of supplementation that I think is appropriate to Schindler to answer your question. And, that, and what's really interesting about is that we sort of start and stop on the first two, first two levels. And we think that's it. We think we're done. Um, and I first got the hint of this, uh, like about this idea when people would say things like, you know, the point of science is to come to definitions of things. And I, I sort of get what they're trying to talk about in terms of nomological generalizations, following, finding laws. But then I thought, no, that's not right. Because science laws are just about predictions. That's what a law is. It's, it's, a, it's a universal prediction. And science is also about explanation, which is the generation of understanding. And so you start to move into, okay, what's understanding above and beyond the proposition and the concept, right? Grasping the significance. And then as soon as you're into that process of relevance realization, you try to find, yes, but what is, what is integrating it all together so that it flows intelligibly? And then you're led to everything we've been talking about, to my mind. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> great introduction. Um, what came up for me here, came up for me there while you were speaking, just like in a spelling bee where uh, competitors are asked, asking the, uh, I guess, presenters of the spelling bee to define the word yeah. and then use it, in a, use it in a sentence that they're trying to see how the thing is integrated into the whole, right? To yes. help yes. them get a yes. grasp on it, I guess, in this case, just the, the structural grasp of spelling um but it, it it's yeah it, we're back to that like where is the meaning right the meaning is yes. not kind of everywhere and nowhere to some extent or in between as we might say yes 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 um and it's and it's not and it's always that in between isn't a static in between it's mm -hmm. an in between it's always a calling a calling you to not to 
finally realize that in your grasping, you also have to be more fundamentally grasped by the reality of a thing. Mm -hmm. that, that's sort of a model of truth that uh, Schindler has been arguing for throughout the text. Yes. And that's, uh, that's how reason is, again, similar to love, etc. cetera, uh, right? Yeah. Right. Which we go straight into next, actually, here. So uh, next excerpt on 2.30. When Aristotle goes on to say, then, that the soul becomes identical to its objects when it knows them, the locus of this identity must, live, must lie formally within the soul itself. It is perhaps not coincidental that such a view of reason corresponds to Aristotle's view of love. As he explains in the Nicomachean Ethics, yes. self-love is the paradigm of love because it represents an absolute unity that other forms of love can only defectively imitate. Yes. The soul's perfect unity with itself is thus, for Aristotle, the beginning and end of both reason and love. And um, I was reminded here of our earlier discussion on um, self, I think it was self-knowledge was the paradigmatic resemblance of the good. Maybe it was self-sufficiency, actually, not self-knowledge. Well, it's, it's, it, it's self-knowledge, but, um, right, and, and an appropriate kind of self-sufficiency. Remember, it's not something you possess, it's something you participate in. Um, and I would, I, I, I would add what, what, uh, what Schindler goes on to because he contrasts Plato with Aristotle. In contrast, as we've argued above, Plato espouses an essentially ecstatic notion of love expressed in the soul's transcendence towards its object, a transcendence that necessarily includes a moment of expropriation. For a soul to join with his object, it does not take the object into itself as it seems to in Aristotle, but goes out in some sense to enter into the object. Um, so Schindler is presenting Plato as, in this sense, uh, the reverse. And this is the idea of the self not as our, our fundamental possession, but as our aspiration towards the whole. So this is to replace a romantic notion, that, right, uh, which is in some sense similar in this respect to Aristotle, of the self as self-possession, self-identity, with the Socratic notion of the self as the aspiration to the whole. So the self is that in you, right? The through line in you that wants to through line into reality, if I can you, uh, appropriate his language. And I think that's a better model. Now, um, I would then trump both of them <laughs> with a Neoplatonic account, uh, which says, well, there's actually a continuity here which is what's happening in love is, yes, you are indwelling the other, but you are also internalizing the other. And I've tried to convey that with this notion of reciprocal opening. Uh, so it isn't conformity of absorption. It's this ongoing reciprocal reconstruction, indwelling and internalization. So um, that is, to my mind, closer to the developmental psychology uh, Vygotsky towards Aaron, that's a last name, account of the psychology of love. And uh, I think it's actually, to my experience, uh, closer to the phenomenology of love. I, right, I do indwell Sara in that I more and more can see the world from her perspective without ever claiming to totally possess that. 
because that would be an error. But I also internalize her in that she is now part of the way my perspectival knowing and my sense of myself have been shaped. She's been internalized into the very structural functional organization of how I see and how I be, if I could rhyme there. Um, and so I find that I get the best answer to that question by putting the two together. Um, and that's, so just let, let's, let, let's just think the moment of self-possession is this metacognitive ability to reflect on oneself and to identify with oneself that Aristotle makes primary. But Aristotle forgets or does not know I only get my ability to take that perspective on myself by first indwelling another's perspective on me and then internalizing it into myself. And so the Platonic notion, I think, is more primary. I think the Aristotelian notion has some value. And I think the Neoplatonic account actually best integrates them together. Well, that's that's really interesting. Because that maps onto childhood development as well, right? That you, yeah, they don't, exactly. re- they don't yeah. understand themselves as a, as a distinct entity until a certain threshold yeah. of development. And that's the internalization of their parents. Right. Yeah. So way before they can introspect and even get the, the very basics of experiential sort of introspection or, or metacognition, they are aware of your mind and your perspective on them. And they'll imitate it. They'll indwell it. They indwell it. They will see themselves through your eyes. You can see this beginning in 18-month-old, but you don't get the capacity to metacognitively have an awareness of your own cognition until you're about four years of age. Now, that's, a, that's not only a fairly long part of human development. That is like the, one of the most fundamental stages of human development. I think Plato is deeply right. Aristotle is at times... Boy, I'm going to piss off a lot of people. <laughs> but I, fi- I find Aristotle incapable of stepping out of an adult male perspective to the degree that Plato can. This is why Plato is so, so more able to speak about play and, and, and childhood and to properly value women. And Aristotle does not talk well of children and he talks misogynistically about women. And that's not to be an ad hominem argument, but I'm pointing to a sort of epistemic defect in Aristotle that I think is showing up in this instance. I think he is not appropriately aware of what Plato had a better insight into. Now, I'll say one more time, that doesn't mean we should dismiss Aristotle. He is saying something important. And I say, like with Gerson and others, there's actually more continuity between them than difference. And the Neoplatonists put it together and you get this, right? The reciprocal opening idea which is what love is yes yes yeah and and the well okay love and reason we've said and i think we'll continue to reinforce this point that it's the reaching beyond themselves that makes it authentic love or reason right reason seeks to undermine itself in a way as does love to some extent that it's reaching beyond itself is that 
that seems to be necessary to establish synoptic perception. Like you're describing, you're seeing yes. all of the world through yeah. your lover's eyes. Not that you possess yes. her perception, but you're just able yes. to see the world yes. through her eyes, the closer yes. you integrate. Yeah. And reason seems to be somewhat similar in that we can totally indwell these ideas that allow us to understand the world um, I mean, through many people's eyes, right? All the people's eyes yeah. that it took to get to this level of understanding or this. I think level yeah. of knowledge maybe well both i think and i think that's well said um uh, i think i think what i like about schindler's emphasis on the contemplative act the contemplative sense of rationality is precisely because this notion of self-transcendence as a transformative self-correction um i i think is really important and so that's that lines up exactly what you just said and notice Right. Notice a connection for you to actually take your lover's view, take how she sees you. Right. You have to acknowledge things in you that you have not yet seen in yourself. Right. And that's part of the internalization. It's the same thing with the truth. Right. Insofar as I've realized how I not properly grasp the significance or I have not properly formulated. I have to step outside of my perspective and then acknowledge the limitations within how I'm generating perspectives if I'm actually going to reason as something beyond just manipulating the variables of a formal system. Yeah, again, becoming more invisible, as we said in the last chapter, yes, right? You, you yes, find a yes. blemish on the mirror, perhaps, and you need to polish it off to better reflect. Yeah, yes. yes. Maybe, I don't know if reflections are right. To be more, less translucent, more invisible i guess yeah yes yes yeah. yes <laughs> um okay i'll jump to 232 here um schindler writes plato wants to show that genuine philosophical knowledge cannot be put into words like other things or perhaps better that words as essential as plato makes them out to be can never simply substitute for the reality itself what is it what is it that can be put into words? He says it is the qualities of an object as distinct from its being. And Schindler goes on to write, if he, if he groups knowledge and right opinion, along with, uh, I think this word is nous, maybe in Greek, together yes. on a single level, it is because there is some feature they share in common, which distinguishes them from everything else. The feature Plato identifies is that they lie in the soul. Yes. Notice Plato here is talking specifically about the form of the relationship implied between the soul and reality. He is not, in other words, talking about truth or falsity, stability or instability, which is typically at issue when he distinguishes between knowledge and opinion. Yes. Um, okay, what I... Actually, what I'd like to ask you about is in this footnote here, and it says, Schindler writes, or as Gadamir puts it, the distinguishing mark is that these are all things possessed as one's own. And yes. that was the footnote um, to Plato identifying things as they lie in the soul. Yes, yes. So one's yes. own is such a yes. key... This is the 
root of the word like proper property you know to have yes. one's own yes the, the properties yes. that distinguish something and identify something yes um I, i'm just curious about the relationship of the soul's relationship to the real and property more generally like the this is something I talk about in my work a lot and I really struggle with it because people typically, when you say the word property in an economic sense, they think, Oh, it's the house, it's the car, it's the thing. Yes. But what we're actually doing is creating this socially acknowledged exclusive binding between an owner and an asset. Yes. And that's what really matters, right? You, you need to know that you own something. That's what allows you to, um, yes be intelligent and make good decisions and store the fruits of your labor and be become wealthy yes. and all of these things. So it seems like that, again, it's kind of like a through line, right? There's the through line between man's intent and his, its expression yes. in the world. And, you know, I don't know, I might just be reaching here, but it seems like there's some, it's kind of meta because there's a relationship between that property relationship and this relationship of the soul to the real. Yes. I'd just love to hear your um, thoughts about that. So th there's a theme that's going to come out, and I'm going to make use, and I think it's completely appropriate, of the Fromian distinction here. Uh, Plato's going to acknowledge the value of how things are proper to us in the sense you've described here, um, and that our relationship to them is that binding relationship you talked about. Uh, and, and then he's, but he's also going to talk about how we can be proper to the real. Uh, and so one way of thinking about this is to see the first as the having mode and the second as being mode. And I remind you once again, it is not that one mode is evil and the other mode is good. Put that aside, that is incorrect, right? It is the confusion that between them that is the error. So what is proper to us is that we can, what we can grasp what we can appropriate, right? And, and, and this is actually appropriate. There are things we need to have control over, to manipulate. Like you said, we need shelter, we, we, we need medicine, we need food, we need water, we need oxygen. And so the having mode is appropriate to that. And what, 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 do, we, what do we have of things? Well, we have, to use the language we've been using, we have the aspects of the thing, or we, we have how they are relative to us, because that is how they are proper to us. But then Plato says, that is fine. And right. But in addition to that, there's a reversal, where you ask not how are things relevant to me, but how am I relevant to them? And that's expropriation that was mentioned in a previous quote, right, where and so this is this is the reversal of the arrow of relevance that you have in the attitude and act of reverence, where it's not how does this serve me, but how do I bind myself? They're both bindings. You're right about that. But the arrow of the direction of the binding differentiates the modes. And so this binding is our manipulation of the aspects and how we can make things proper to us. But the, what we can't make proper to us is what we've been talking about a lot, the in itselfness of a thing, because that is precisely what we cannot appropriate, right? And, th and then we realize when we move to that, when we want to be in relation to the good, 
of the thing in that sense that I'm talking about, right? That which is not relative to us, but how the thing has its realness. Then we move into the being mode. We want to enter into a appropriate ratio religio to the mystery, because that is how we grow beyond ourselves. The being mode is our developmental mode. It's the ecstatic mode. Now, I'm going to repeat once again, because people will like twist this one way or the other. Neither one of these modes is evil or good, because as we've been talking about before, the relative has to be included within the absolute or not on opposition, or we don't appropriately understand our relationship to the absolute. So I know that was a more complex answer than you originally proposed, but I think that is what uh, Schindler is trying to reveal in Plato's text. And so one of the things, I mean, this is analogous, analogous to, you know, render under Caesar what is Caesar and render under God what is God, right? Um, they're not exactly equivalent, but they can talk to each other, I think, in a friendly fashion. And so, again, you know, the proper proportioning doesn't just mean a quantitative how much, it means a qualitative which mode are you in and is it appropriate to what you are doing? Or are you modally confused? Are you trying to grow up by having sex or purchasing a car? But the reverse is also the case. You can be too spiritually minded as, and he quotes that, he quotes that in this text, but you can be, Schindler does, you can be too spiritually minded to be of any earthly good. You can, right, always be talking about, and this, is a, this has become a prevailing problem in our society. It's called spiritual bypassing. So Plato is trying, right? Remember, we're always finite. We, we have real having needs, but we are also bound to transcendence. We have real being needs. And the, the, the best life is the one that recognizes them and has the proper proportioning of them. Yeah, well said. Um, the, the reversal of that arrow you brought up, that, that's a reversal of the arrow of relevance realization, I take it? Well, it, 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 yeah, it's, it, well, relevance realization is always this. It's sort of the, reverser, the reversal of the intentionality, uh, the direct of the relevance realization is it is it relevance for me or is it relevance to and so when when you're a child you are dominated of how is it relevant to me although there is already initially from the very beginning how am i relevant to moms right but when you become for example a parent or even somebody who wants to love another in depth you move There's a reversal to, Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. And so, and, and, the, and the thing we, we have to understand is both of those, the relative within the having mode and the absolute within the being mode, right, are needed in our relationship to the world and towards being. But if we, if we are confused, modally confused, or we're not properly proportioning them according to what is most rational, then of course we can be messing up in a very deep way. So this is why I keep challenging the simplistic one is good and the other is evil. It is a much, and as Schindler argues, it's this much more complex interpenetration between the two that we are seeking if we are seeking, right, if we are seeking to be rational in this platonic sense. Yeah, great point. Um, 
You know, I'm just realizing that yesterday we said we we're going to finish those last two points on chapter four. And I'm wondering if we should jump backwards and do that now or try to do that towards the end. I think we should keep rolling with the momentum we've built. And okay. we go back, you know, if we think there's something central to be drawn from those. I reviewed them for today, but I would like to proceed because okay. I think I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like we're starting to catch the logos. And okay. I don't want to disrupt that. I want to. I want to follow it as it <laughs> as it will go, as Socrates repeatedly says. Fair enough. I do the 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 concluding points of the last chapter of minding one's own business and becoming transparent yeah. is the only adequate way to speak the truth. I thought those were really important. So maybe we they can. Are. Yeah. Get back there at some point, but I agree. Let's keep rolling. Um, okay, I'm going to jump to page two thirty six here. Right, I'm jumping with you. Schindler writes, uh, but when it is the fifth about which we are compelled to answer or make explanations, and again, we're talking about those four layers, the fifth being this, uh, uh, I'm sorry, was it just knowledge itself or was the fifth? The fifth is the, is the, is the, is the, is the conformity, right? The participation in the reality itself. The ecstatic right? moment. Yes, exactly. Okay. All right. So that's what we're, this is in regard to. So I'll start over. But when it is the fifth about which we are compelled to answer or make explanations, then anyone who wishes to refute has the advantage and can make the propounder of a doctrine, whether in writing or speaking or in answering questions, seem to most of his listeners completely ignorant of the matter on which he is trying to speak or write. Right. Those who are listening sometimes do not realize that it is not the soul of the speaker or writer which is being refuted, but these four instruments mentioned, each of which is by nature defective. Yes. yes. Um, so this came again, <laughs> drawing another connection back to the book Leela by Persig. He makes this point yeah. that the perfect metaphysics is as impossible as the perfect chess strategy yes that it's not something you can um contain or formulate you know it's like yes. like you've you've made many examples of this uh, in regard to adaptivity what is yes. the final form of an organism like it doesn't even make yes. sense right it's yes 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 always exactly. a, always contextual i guess to the environment fitness to the environment and so it is i, I just that, this came up for me. I don't know that it's a correct connection or not, but the, the truth being defenseless, as he's saying here, is you can't defend this thing because it's not a, a static thing, right? It's 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 ecstatic, I guess, is yes. the connection. Yes, exactly. So if somebody is not capable of joining you in a joint journey of self-transformation, self-transcendence, then your ability to argue with them on the basis of something that transcends a framing is going to be seen as ridiculous. This is that Socrates returning back into the cave and within the rules and parameters of the cave, everything he is saying can just be destroyed by argument, right? By logical argumentation. It's the same thing if, you, if I say to you, prove to me that you love your spouse. Prove it to me. 
go ahead. Right. Prove it to me. Right. Or, you know, uh, are you conscious? Yes. Prove it to me. Good luck. Right. So, and, I, I, and by the way, I'm not advocating for any decadent romanticism, which means now we just give into irrational impulse. What I'm trying to indicate is, and what Schindler's trying to indicate is something that I, I found actually spoken very well of in Spinoza, whereas, you know, Spinoza says in, in many places, well, in several places, and in, in, in sort of slightly different terms, but he says something like truth is its own light, truth is its own standard. And that's what I've tried to meant when, when I said, you have to think of truth adverbially rather than adjectivally. You, you, mm. you, you, know, you know, not truth is, you know, whatever predicate, but in the, in, in truthing, in overcoming uh, how you have misapprehended something, that is the moment of truth. Aletheia, as Heidegger would um, uh, really make central in his work. And that ability to do that and open oneself up to reality transforming you and making a demand on you, that's the moment of truth. Not because the next thing you then land on is the truth, right? And, and, and so you think about this again um, in science. Like many people in science, I'm a fallibilist because the history of science has shown that every theory is ultimately false in some important way. And it is ridiculous to conclude that our theories are any, in, in any way other than that. But does that mean, well, science is useless? No, because science has developed this rigorous manner of self-correction. And whenever we move, we can then reflectively realize how we were limited. But that doesn't mean that where we've landed is the truth. And so, yeah, it, it, and so I can't, I can't conclusively show you what the truth is, even from a scientific perspective, because to do so would be to, it's a performative contradiction. It would be to deny in one's very actions of speech, the very nature of science. Do you see what, what you see what I'm trying to convey, right? Um, now, but again, again, that doesn't give you relativism or your opinion is just as good as mine. No, because the scientists can say, but take this perspective and from it, you can see the limitations of these other perspectives. Now, a good scientist shouldn't become scientistic and say, our perspective is the perspective. Um, that to me just is not to pay attention to the history and the practice of science. So you can't ultimately defend science. What, think about it. How would you do it? Well, I'll run some scientific experiments and gather some scientific evidence. Well, that's to presuppose that science is in some sense legitimate. Well, I'll offer an argument for it, you know, like in the philosophy of science. Well, what would that argument do other than presuppose the self-correcting nature of reason that science tries to participate in. And this is Schindler's point, right? If you're not willing to acknowledge the ecstatic nature of reason, then nothing I can say will actually refute your criticisms of me. Now, this is a very dangerous thing to say because you don't want people to just invoke it so that they don't have to defend their claims or so that they don't have to enter into discussion with you. In fact, 
They are only invoking it legitimately if they are precisely willing to talk with you, to dialogue with you, to argue with you. Yeah, that's, um, I've heard you talk about that before. It's quite interesting that science, it's a very useful tool, but it cannot justify its own existence in some, in some ways. It, not only can it not have justified, currently and up till now, it has been unable to explain its own existence. Uh, we don't have a scientific explanation for how we generate scientific explanations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, or what, what kind of beings we have to be in order to be yeah. able to do that, or how the world ultimately has to be structured so that math and science work about, like, not that we're not making progress on any of these questions, but notice what I want to say here. We have no conclusive Thing to say about them. And I think it's quite plausible that we never will if we really understand. And so we have to, we have to get to this place where we understand that science is not just another perspective in one sense, but in another sense, it is. And, and we have to hold those two together in a very careful relationship. It's interesting that... Um science itself i mean it really is inquiry i guess right it is this systematic way of questioning or engaging in dialogue with reality yes. to some extent um and it's you know i I, just, I keep what comes up for me again there's the market process being irreducible the market yeah. is this process or this form of inquiry you know and you can't yes. get beneath that in the economic sciences it's like the atom of, of economics, if you will, it's just the market, no matter where you go, you hit the market. And um, just interesting to me, you can't, I don't know, there's no answer for that. It's like, why is there a market? Why, why is there trade occurring? Yes, you know, um, anyways, I want to double click on something you just said there. Um, you mentioned adverbially, verb, verbally versus adjectivally. Yes. And I've heard you use those two terms to i think it was in describing the pure consciousness experience yes yes where you, you there's different yeah. yes, maybe, yes maybe you could just expand upon that a bit i've just heard you mention it i don't know a lot about it okay oh okay so um i, I know that's a detour we don't have to take it if you don't want i'm just wondering if there's some connection no, I'll, I'll, I'll take it because it might actually be helpful later i i i i i have an intuition that your introduction of it is not just right, uh, 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 you know, tangential or digressive. I, I think you are reaching for something that might afford us um, uh, some tools we can use to explain other things. Uh, so uh, the pure consciousness event is a state that is realized. It was sort of brought to the fore by Foreman, but it's a state that's realized, I've realized it um, by many people in deep and extended meditative practice. Um, so in, and there's an explanation, a good explanation, I try to offer it in conjunction with other people's work of what's going on in that in terms of how we can step back and look at our perspectives and then we can step back and, right? And then what, 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 it, what it entails is um, you're conscious, not of anything. You're not even conscious of consciousness, you're just conscious. Um, and you can get a little taste of it and try and answer as, as instantaneously as you can. Are you conscious right now? Yes. 
And how do you know you're conscious? By being um, conscious. Yeah. By being conscious. The knowing and the being, like this is perfect participatory knowing. The knowing, con right? The knowing that you're conscious and being conscious are not separables. Mm -hmm. So just being conscious, right, is a possibility for you. So mm -hmm. you're, you're just in the pure consciousness. So you're not aware of any adjectives. You're not aware of blue or green or, or any categories that could be predicated, like it's a dog or it's a cat or it's big or it's small. So that's all the adjectival stuff goes away. But you don't black out. You don't black out. So there is something there when all of these adjectival properties are lost. And what's there is what I argue is actually essential to consciousness. Because what the pure consciousness event shows, I would argue, with Foreman and others, is that a lot of the stuff that philosophers get hung up about, uh, you know, about what's the, the, what's, what's the greenness of green, and the, right, the hard problem of folia, which, by the way, is important. But one of the points that I want to make is that is presupposing that those are essential features of consciousness, that they're necessary and sufficient for being consciousness, for being conscious. And the, the pure consciousness event shows you that those qualia are not necessary. They can be absent, and yet you are still conscious. I think there are other things that show the, that the adjectival qualia are not sufficient. And because they're neither necessary nor sufficient, we can't make a claim of them being at least analytically uh, necessary. Now, what remains are adverbial qualia, the hearness, the sense of hearness, and, and that's the sense of presence. You don't disappear, right? There's the nowness, which becomes almost absolute in a sense of eternity. And then the, the togetherness, right, of your experience, which is often articulated again as kind of an absolute oneness or unity. So all the adverbial qualia remain. Now, I'm not going to do it here. I've done it elsewhere. And if you want to see it in depth, you can watch Untangling uh, the World Not series that I did with Greg Enriquez. But all of those properties, I would argue, those adverbial properties, can be understood in terms of relevance, realization, and attentional processes therein that right, make a, a very strong case for being able to do, do things at the same time, explain what consciousness is fundamentally doing. It's not painting mental pictures. It's fundamentally helping us do relevance realization in situations that are high in ill-definedness, novelty, and complexity. But that functionality is precisely bound to this very basic kind of phenomenology, this here-ness and now-ness and togetherness that survives even in the pure consciousness event. And that means we can start to join the function of consciousness to the phenomenal nature of consciousness. And we can start to answer both what does consciousness do and what, it, what kind of thing is consciousness. And so I think that's really, really important. Now, if you'll allow me, I think this does move back to right, something that is relevant to Plato, because if you, if you, and notice I'm using realize in this really, really participatory sense, if you realize the ground of consciousness, this sort of the pure being of awareness, 
in the pure consciousness event. You can also understand that there is something that right is resonant with that about the the pure pure being. So behind all the thoughts and all the concepts and even all the predicates and all the adjectives is the pure being, right? Pure, the pure being of, of pure consciousness. Can I is that okay? And yeah, the, then the pre-intellectual cutting edge. Yes. And that that is exactly one with, not logically identical to, but one with the pure being that is behind all the things and their relations, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get non-duality. You get the reciprocal opening between the ground of the psyche and the ground of the world. And, and they are both participating in, because they're resonating with each other, the pure being that Plato is talking about. And I think and this becomes very clear in Neoplatonism, this non-duality that's also spoken about convergently, not logically identically, but convergently in Vedanta, in Buddhism, and in Taoism. And so there's something fundamental being disclosed. Now, when people have these, they describe these as the really real, Plato's exact term, the really real, the realization of the real, of the real, really real, or as Nishitani puts it, the self-realization of the really real, which is that his definition for religion, right? The binding. Now, they're not proving any claim of reality. What they're, what they're claiming is to have to realize, to be fully participating in that which cannot be demonstrated precisely because it is the ground field of all possible sense-making, perception, conception. And again, if you haven't, gone there, or at least even felt yourself moving in that trajectory, this will fall on many people's ears, like Socrates talking about the sun in the cave. It's like, oh, that's all ridiculous. That makes no sense. That's mumbo jumbo. That's navel gazing until it happens to you. And then you go, oh, crap. But I can make exactly the same argument to somebody who has never been in love. Oh, that's all just wishy-washy thinking. Blah, blah, blah. And then they go through it. And they go, oh, my gosh. Oh my gosh. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. you have to be careful about this. I acknowledge that. But the digression, I think, actually give us gives us another another kind of language drawn in some interesting way, both from cognitive science and from the mystical traditions, about talking about what Plato is talking about. <clears throat> yeah, this uh, the you know. It's almost funny in a way. It's like, how many reels can you get into one phrase? And that's <laughs> most closely mapped to reality. Yeah, yeah, but this, yeah. this really, really real that we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I've, I don't know that I've experienced the pure consciousness event per se, but in meditation, you get to a place that is yes. yeah. transcendent, yes. deeply unified. Good. Yes. yes. Um, and it's, it seems to be, my own personal experience, at least it's a wellspring of creativity. Like you go into yes. this thoughtless dimension, yes. but when you, as you come out, or even sometimes when you're there, like these really profound thoughts will come to you. Yes. And it's funny when we wrapped up yesterday, I went for a swim. I'm here in Kauai. I went and swam in the ocean and I'm, you know, I'm doing a freestyle. So every three strokes, I tilt my head left to take a breath and tilt my head right and repeat. And when I would tilt my head right, I would have the sun on my face, you know, and uh -huh. there's some, we talked so much about the sun analogy yesterday. 
and the feeling of the sun on your body, like it's probably the closest thing in terms of goodness that you can experience deep in meditation. They seem like yes. they're almost, they're yes. related somehow. I don't know. Yeah. And yes. you know, yes. the relationship would be uh, explicated here, but I had never made that connection before in my life. And then the other way, I mean, you said something yesterday too, where when you come to realize that the sun is what energizes and animates your very biology that is yeah, making yeah. this ascent towards the yeah. good it's yeah, really possible. Yeah, yeah it's a it's a revelation of sorts but um but back on this adverbial and ad adjectival so we're becoming this place then we're becoming deep in meditation we're becoming and being seem to converge yeah. yes or the yes. rel relative and the absolute seem to converge. Yes. This is then akin, I guess the adverbial is akin somehow to the absolute because you still have the adverbs when you have this pure consciousness event. It is because but the adjectives the are more, they pertain more to the becoming, right? The relativity. Yes. And, and, and sort of distinguishing in speech, the different aspects and perspectives as we do, as we should, by the way. Again, as Schindler says, Plato cares about the excellence of, and the care of words. But the adverbial is ultimately, again, only something you can enact and participate in, right? It's not something you can speak. You, it can be your manner of speaking, but it can't be something you speak. Now, of course, we speak adverbs, but then what we're doing is we're, we're again, we're not actually uh, exemplifying them to exemplify something adverbially you right you move into uh, uh, some kind of participation often transformative because the adverb represents some kind of development some kind of unfolding um this so, is the i'm sorry if i'm wrong here but this is the isness right and yes we use it like is is probably one of the most commonly used words Yes. And so it's, it's pervasive in our language, but it's so fundamental that when you try to ask someone to find the word is like, it's pretty difficult, actually. Yes. But what's interesting is that's exactly the term Huxley uses in the doors of perception to talk about his experience on mescaline. Right. He said there was all this isness. Right. But he's not he's not he's not pointing to is a cat is a dog. He's pointing to, well, he's pointing to what, what is presupposed by pointing. Let me, let me try and do this, okay? So I can be adjectival. This is a pencil. This is a TV remote, right? Or I can do what's called demonstrative reference where I'm not making an adjectival claim about it. I'm drawing your attention to it and making it salient to you. So I can go this, this, this 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 the this there's no category in fact and this is a point made by zen and pollution you need that that sort of attentional analog to demonstrative reference in order to categorize in order to categorize i have to i have to bind things together in co-salience this 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 and then you can form a category the category depends on the this the thising the ising of things. Is this making any yeah, sense? Is this, okay. Is this related to mathematics somehow? Because I'm, I'm thinking. Well, it's, 
zero is the category for no category, basically. So it's kind of like the isness. And then what you just did, you held up three things, said this, 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 and then you can make a category. And math is just like one of the most fundamental categorizations. So the maybe, I, I, insofar as the zero points to the no thingness that can bind these things together so I can start to categorize them, then we, we are, we, I think we're, we're pointing towards something. Now, what's interesting about this is this can be shown, shown experimentally. So Polition did work with what's called multiple object tracking. So imagine a computer screen and you have like red X's and green squares and purple zeros, and they're all moving around. And, you, and what you're doing, and notice how this is so primordial as hunter-gatherers, right? But you're tracking where these things are moving. Like the red circle starts out here, and I'll ask you at some point, where's the red circle now? And you go there, right? Now, you can actually track about up to about eight things, which is really kind of cool if you think about it. But when you max out the tracking, you lose all of the adjectives. Think about how this relates to the pure consciousness event. So what will happen is this started out as a red circle and it moved and it will become in between a green square and now it's a purple rectangle. And I'll ask you, where's the red circle now? And you'll point to it, but you will have no knowledge that it's changed from a red circle into a purple rectangle. All you have is the here-ness, now-ness, togetherness through line. You don't have right and that is that and that's the ability to track and to trace and to find the through line and to group that makes categorization possible but notice that it is absolutely just about here-ness now-ness and togetherness the pure consciousness event is just moving into that demonstrative reference state that's at the core of our attentional engagement to the world. Did that help? Yeah, it did. So there's a trade-off then that's occurring where you, yes, you yes, get more quantity yes. of tracing these things, but you give up the qualia of the individual things you're yes, tracking. Yes. Wow. And what you what you get to is the basic ability to draw them into co-relevance and co-salience so that you can start even the most basic categorization of them and that is how you start to bring out their aspects and their properties etc etc and the point therefore of that and this is again what i'm trying to show you is the pure consciousness event yes it's something that you can get a sense of or you can even realize in pure meditation but it's not navel-gazing. It's in the guts of how you are attending to the world right now. But it is so transparent to you because the framing of it is so primordial that you take it absolutely for granted. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And it seems like, as you mentioned with Mr. Huxley, that psychedelics operate on that yes, quite profoundly. They, yes, they they they. They turn the, salient, the, 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 the salience landscaping, the salience enhancing, the salience tagging function of consciousness onto that very process of ising. It's like it becomes completely reflective. You're salience tagging your ability to salience tag. Wow, that is, that is amazing.
so Robert, I was wondering if I could read a quote because I think it brings everything we just said back to Schindler's text and it's right on the page where you're at, 237. Please. Right. The mode of knowledge that Plato indicates here is genuinely absolute. It is not the soul's possession of a thing and so it is not a conceptual content that can be verbally formulated, but it is rather the soul dwelling with the being of the thing itself. A relation that precisely because it transcends verbal formulation provides, in fact, the only genuine basis for one's words. So notice again the shifting between the having and the being modes. And notice how what I was trying to do with the multiple object tracking, I was trying to give you what lies beneath your capacity to categorize things is not something that can be right, that, that, that can be categorically spoken of, but you have to be with it, right? And you're literally being with the through line of the object and, and it's adverbially conjoined to it, bound to its here-ness, its now-ness, its togetherness. And, but that ability to ratio religio, right, is what makes the, what gives you the ability to bind things together in a field of intelligibility so that categorization and therefore speech is made possible. That's, that, that's, what, that's what is going on in that, that passage I just read to you from Schindler. Yeah, that, oh, that connects for me well then. So the actual <clears throat> tracing of those individual elements on the screen is yeah. your being with them or your indwelling yeah, in yeah. them. Yes, so exactly. It's again, it's again back to this um, empathy being the path to real understanding, right? You have to empathize with a little dot and actually you feel it, right? You feel where it's yeah. at and therefore you can trace eight of them at a time or whatever it is. Um, I'll actually read a little bit further than what you just read. And he goes on to write, there's an incredible tension here. The heart of the matter is what is most vulnerable. Precisely what is most important cannot be said. Yeah. And if it cannot be said, one can never give a fully adequate description of it or argument for it, at least not in words alone. We are reminded of Socrates, Socrates' reticence for speaking about the idea of the good with precision at the very moment when he says precision is most necessary. It is the very nature of what is ultimate to be ultimately defenseless. Yeah. And this herein is the chapter title, The Truth is Defenseless. Yes, um, yes. And the way I thought about this is like, okay, clearly what we're, whatever we're saying here, the capital T truth is yeah. beyond words, beyond logic, beyond all, anything relativistic whatsoever. So if, it, by that token, it makes sense. You can't defend it in words, right? You can approach yeah. it, I guess, in argumentation, but you can't mount a defense for something that's beyond words and words. Yes. I would modify that in only, only in one way, which I don't think you'll disagree with. The truth is beyond, but it's also between and within. Because yes. there's also the withinning of words that is not in the words, right? What is between words ultimately isn't words. Uh, and, and we need to stop and think about that. There's the gestalting of the words that's not any word, right? Uh, that may, right, oh, well, that's the sentence, but you're just repeating the, the, the point I'm trying to make, right? And so 
as long as you as long as you don't get sort of a two worlds thing going where the truth is out there because what you might what somebody might say well if it's always completely beyond you have no way of knowing about it and they can be dismissive but if you realize that it's not only beyond but between and within which is plato's point and schindler's point then your dismissing of it is a performative contradiction so you say, oh, right and that's what i was trying to show with the multiple object tracking wow all this pure oh but look it's actually fundamental to every act of attention and perception that you're engaging in the most concrete guts of your experience it's also there in a profoundly demonstrable way and so by putting the two together it, it is what you just said i'm not denying that it is beyond but it is also within and between right it, that is also not captured by our words because it is precisely the non-word binding the words together and the transformation of our representations that is not themselves that is not itself a representation etc 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 it's the silence between the notes and music right yes yes but the the ratio religio silence that makes them into a melody yes exactly and so notice the melody is both interpolated in the notes as well as extrapolated beyond the notes if i can put it that way to build on what we're just saying here it's the the through line is both within like interpolation it, it, right in it with data points but it is also forever beyond like the the proper extrapolation yeah it's it's um I don't know, the intuition I have is that we keep coming back to like this window into the void as somehow the ground stuff, you know? Um, yes, yes. I yes. don't know. I don't even know if it's non-being per se. It's it's um, because non-being implies a duality with being. It's something right yeah, below yeah. that. That's yeah. the true no thingness, I guess. Yes, yes. And, and exactly the point. When you sort of do this outreach, the ecstasis, well, well, you're reaching. It's you. You've realized that your reach somehow you're bends returning. around, yeah, yeah on, on, underneath you, and it's like, whoa, <laughs> how did that happen? Um, yeah, yeah, you're reaching out, and you end up scratching the back of your own head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much, very much. That's funny. Now, I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. 
Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. Okay, I'm going to read something at the bottom of 238 here. Sure. I'm starting in the middle of a sentence, but Schindler writes, a modest silence about the heart of things is no false modesty, but a modesty that acknowledges what it means for something to be true in a more in a more than relative sense. In this respect, letter seven provides a decisive confirmation of our interpretation of goodness as the cause of truth. A thing is true because it exists in itself in a manner irreducible to its relations. And this is just what it means to participate in absolute goodness. Right. So obviously, um, okay, I've mentioned a million times about the market thing being irreducible, but a different aspect on this is emergent properties themselves. Yes. That you can't take an emergent property and decompose it into its relations. That's right. right. Somehow it's more than the sum of its parts. Yes. Um, so I, I don't know. That just came up for me here. I, I just going over, over to that, you. <laughs> that, that, but that brings up what we talked about before. Emergence without emanation is just epiphenomenalism, mm-hmm. right? Which means it. So it's always emergence and emanation. As you reach out, there's something about reality that is twisting it back around behind you, like we just said. Right. So, right. It's it it, 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 and this is what we've been talking about before this structure of intelligibility, uh, the, the procession and the return in simultaneity, the scientia intuitiva is the moment when you are participating in this non logical, non conceptual identity between truth and goodness. That's that's what's basically being being said here because I'm only it, it, I, I, I'm only getting at the truth of something if I am seeing how it is beyond all the ways it is bound to my egocentric perspective. We all know that in one intuitive sense, but when you really try to cash that out, like Plato's doing and Schindler's doing on Plato's behalf, it gets us into what we're talking about right now. It gets us into this, oh, well, yeah, right? Out of all of these things, something emerges. Out of all the words, a sense emerges that's not reducible to them, right? Um, and But yet that overall sense disambiguates the words. Remember we were talking about the simultaneous bottom up and top down of reading, the legibility. Well, the legibility and intelligibility, by the way, they, they have shared root, shared etymological root. Right. Uh, the word intelligence actually means to read between the lines. Think about that. Think about that. <laughs> Interleisure, right? To read between the lines. And so picking up on, on this is exactly right. As long as you remember, like, and it's like the movement we just made about Right. You know, the going out is always the right. The, the rising up is also 
the 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 shining down uh, to use a whole bunch of different metaphors together and and notice that we would not be talking about any of this if we thought that rationality was just computational rationality or even worse if we thought it was if we thought it was just communicative rhetoric but when we move to this we start to unpack what must we be like what must the world be like and how must we be participating in the world such that an intelligibility is itself possible and that is the core platonic question yeah and that i mean it makes sense that it all not all but it, it comes back to justice a lot right the question of justice um i mean i was thinking even in the newtonian sense which is like quite low resolution of a model we know now but for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction like a lot of these things we're describing sound like that yes yes in a, in a lower resolution which would be some form of basic cosmological justice perhaps right for every action there's equal and opposite reaction yeah i i i think that's i think that 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 that, that was um, that was something that was actually voiced explicitly by some of the pre-Socratic philosophers. They were trying to get the sense of the reciprocity between things as somehow fundamental. Um, and, and what's interesting about that is that Iris Murdoch in The Sovereignty of the Good, by the way, the another book I recommend to it's you. It's on the list. I got it already. Okay. <laughs> and, and she talks about the the core of justice is to treat things as they deserve to right to ratio religio to them in terms of not only how they are relevant to you but again right how you are right relevant to them affording their disclosure and so she calls that sort of the the that attentional ratio religio is actually the fundamental move of justice to give things the attention they deserve both quantitatively and qualitatively is the core of 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 of, of ethics uh, especially of justice and and think and notice how we have we have the just right i i'm just seeing this or i'm adjusting yeah, like that's in our language even about how we are relating to things. Um, and I believe I believe there's some etymological relationship there. Uh, maybe I got that from Murdoch. My memory might be failing me here. But so it's not only that reciprocity between things, but again, like we've talked about, that reciprocity between us and the reciprocity of things. And I wonder about how much we are driven by that without acknowledging it. Because what the internet and social media is doing is, I'll play with some of your language and if I, if I, if I do it incorrectly, please say something. But it's sort of revealing attention. We talk about paying attention as, as the fundamental currency of social media and, and, and yet we are not bringing any reflection to about how we have a deep epistemic 
and moral and aesthetic obligation to paying attention in the right way. Um, and so we are, we are enacting the centrality of our attentional ratio religio without explicating it and then trying to acknowledge and properly appreciate it and educate it. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking, I need to read a lot more about attention, but it seems like you could boil down, well, here's one way to look at it. In economics, we often talk about supply and demand, right? It's very, right. very common, but you could also reduce that to satisfaction and desire right because it's ultimately yes. just the demand is desire right people have desires they want fulfilled and then su supply right of goods capital services they yes. satisfy those desires basically so the entire economic system in a way you could think of as a giant system for allocating our attention right we're trying to allocate ah, our attention right. to the desires those with the wherewithal to pay want satisfied Right. So it right, gets, right. and that's what the division of labor essentially is, which I'm sure you've heard about from like Adam Smith, but you just have a longer production process with more individual attention focused on increasingly smaller segments of that production process. So right. another way of saying that's greater specialization. Yes. And it's, it's through that iterative process of greater specialization and longer production structures that involve more people that we we increase standards of living, we increase capital accumulation. So it's the more finely we allocate our attention, the more precisely we allocate our attention, perhaps. Um, and again, you know, to try and tie this together, this is again, just kind of me speculating. But we, we talked earlier about how property is this relationship between owner and asset. Yeah. It's the yeah, yeah. it is the fundamental um, institution that makes this whole economic system work if you don't have property then you don't get the economic system basically and to the degree you don't have property is the to the degree you don't have the economic system um another way to describe property those we and this is the i think this is Locke. maybe you know we combine our labor with nature yeah it's a participatory theory yeah it's participatory yeah. so you're you're expropriating ultimately from nature through work right you're cutting down the trees to build a house or whatever it may be but what you were saying here where it's th this idea of properly apportioning attention property is kind of doing that in that you're giving people or you said justice is what giving yes. people or giving things what they deserve i think the proper proportioning of it. Yeah, yes. what someone deserves is like the fruits of their labor, right? If they went out and built the house, well, they deserve to have the rights and the responsibility. It's very key. We always, always talk about property rights, but we ignore the other side of the coin, which is responsibility. You have to maintain right. the house. You have to insure the house. You have to protect the house, et cetera. Yeah. Um, that, and that seems to be very essential to the justice at the heart of civilization itself. And there's a number of ways I could take this. Ayn Rand often described, and not just Ayn Rand, Mises, lots of ec economists say property, private property is essentially the basis of civilization. If you don't have it, you're not gonna have a civilization in the same way. Uh, if you don't have that economic system, then you're gonna have people fighting over the stuff versus just making the stuff, right? And then the other thing I would, say to connect it to justice is that the entire justice system itself, the rule of law grounds out in private property. It exists exclusively to resolve disputes 
um, over scarce resources ultimately. So it's just interesting to me that there's this, this idea of properly apportioning our attention, but also properly, uh, I guess, awarding and penalizing people based on their behavior. Like this is all very intrinsic to the notion of justice and the justice system more broadly. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, um, I don't know. There's so many things, uh, the justice system, uh, it does exist to resolve disputes, but I would argue that it also exists, right? So there's people who argue about the symbolic function of the legal system. The legal system also tries to indicate to you what we care about or what we find important or salient in a society. Um, and and I, I think that's also an important function here of the way it's directing our attention. It's saying, you know, this is important um so uh, and, and and this is not right uh, so th there's no serious legislation trying to limit the number of flavors of ice cream for example or something like that it's like well why does that that's not that important but you know we put out serious legislation you know uh for you know hitting somebody or harming them well because a person is important and i, I can see how that overlaps with what you're saying about property but i'm also I I'm should add, I should add there because it's person and property. Basically, yeah. if it's owner yeah, yeah. and asset, your body is your most, uh, it's a, your inalienable property. You can't trade away your body, right? Like your, yeah. Yeah. your cognitive faculties in your body are kind of inextricably bound up. So it's, it does encompass both of those things. I just wanted to let you know that. No, that that's good. Well, I'm just asking you what you think about the idea of law as also directing our attention uh, making things salient and making constant claims about the relative importance of things uh, in in our society. I would because like, one of the reasons of uh, well, according to this view, one of the reasons why we punish people is not just to rehabilitate them or to you know or, or to deter other crime. It's a way of saying to everybody, this is important. This is important because we also have things that are not, you know, uh, forbidden. There's also things that are promoted in some sense, uh, uh, you know, around the law, you know, things that we consider important to do, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I would um, I would struggle to come up with an example myself that didn't somehow ground out in property and that general understanding, even even when you're describing punishing someone right presumably they violated someone's property like what else did they get in trouble for they either stole from someone or hurt someone or or broke a law of some kind um this is you know the the natural law ethic it yeah. grounds out in this single um dictum which is do not steal but do not steal can be uh, expanded into, you know, do not hurt others, right? To, to kill someone is to steal someone's life, for instance. So, um, right. I, I, I'm not denying any of that. I'm trying to get in addition to do not steal, which if you'll allow me some, um, from Christian language is old Testament. There's the new Testament, love your neighbor as yourself, which isn't the same as don't harm them. Don't steal. It's right. It's that treat them as important as you consider your own 
importance or you know love the god, love your the lord your god with all your heart and so I, you can't you can't really make a law about that even though it's a commandment you know right. that's what i'm trying to get at i'm trying to get at those things that are kind of trans legal in that they try to tell us what we should consider important what we should uh what we should pay attention to sort of above and beyond how we're trying to i, I don't know what i want to say here you know get along with people or or or, or live this, together in civilization i i, I I'm, I'm struggling here but I'm, I'm trying to get i'm trying to get is, is it a um like legislating of morality type question or well I, i'm trying i think i've made a mistake because i think what i'm trying to point to and maybe this is again uh schindler i think legislation is where morality goes when it's becoming relative to a particular system or nation or culture and, and then we try to rise above that when we try to think about uh, how we how we bind that culture to reality itself, which is not something that can be given or demonstrated by the I, yeah. Here's the analogy: like the laws of the culture can't ground the laws of the. We can't make any law about that because there has to be something that binds that too right you see what i'm trying I'm, this is exactly analogous to what we've been talking of, about before it like there's something that's meta legal that has to bind these all together i'm trying to suggest to you that 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 the market is not only sort of specializing down and then dealing with all the interactions right it, it, it's also leaching up um in that yeah, I take it that it also it, it rep, I'm trying to say something like it represents our cultural aspirations and and, and 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 the ways in which we try to bind a particular culture to a particular environment to a particular nation state, etc. Did that make any sense? Mm -hmm. That's what I'm trying to get at. Well, um, so two things came up for me. One would be this this meta legal. Uh, grounding yeah. perhaps you're talking about i think that is where we get into r religion right or ideology yes. there has to be some grounding yeah. below the legal system that's, that, know, making, that's yeah yeah and that's making certain assumptions about, about standard operating behavior something to that effect some, something like a worldview that binds agents and arenas together so that moral codes and legal codes and aesthetic codes can be operating but they, th those those rules and those codes can't ground themselves. They are meaning systems. But yeah, this is what Gertz says religion does. It's the meta meaning system uh, that's doing that. I guess that I guess that that's a good way of putting it. So my 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 question that becomes maybe this: Does the law sometimes try to mediate or moderate between you know what the market is doing? and the the meta meaning of culture that religion is doing is it sometimes doing that as well you know i'm i don't know the answer i mean the way i understand it today is that basically you you know life liberty and property are the principles right go out live your life free create as much value as you want trade with other people that are self-owned doing the same thing and then do that division of labor, we create more wealth. 
but inevitably this whole that whole thing the whole system of trade by the way exists to not resolve conflict over scarce resources but to reduce scarcity itself right we're actually increasing economic abundance reducing scarcity but in the event there is some irreconcilable difference between two market actors and they can't come to terms whatever it is right i think i own the house you said you built the house then we have recourse to some coercive apparatus right the political legal apparatus that we can actually go and then adjudicate the the agreement that we had so i'm not sure like I, maybe i'm thinking about it too mechanically and that i'm not well, a, well, i'm not let, a, let, let, me, let me try and do it more concretely then and and, and this actually relates uh, and then i think we can maybe swing back to schindler through this i'm thinking about like laws against treason they're kind of they don't make any sense because right if you were bound to the legal system you wouldn't commit treason and yet you're making a law within the legal system in which you're trying to say you have to love this system but do you see what i'm, I'm trying to get at like what are we punishing somebody for in in treason we're, right we're pay, we're sort of punishing them for not agreeing to the fundamental commitment and love that binds everyone to the system uh there's the I, I think it was Harachi, might be a different poet, but he talks about the oldest lie. Have you ever heard this? No, no. There's a, there's a long poem, but the, the punchline of the poem is that the oldest lie in history is that it is a noble thing to die for your country. Right. And right. so he's making this whole point that it's not, you know, Nash, and it's kind of a point I wanted to get to later that I think nationalism. I have a good question about this later, but basically I think it might just be a intermediate phase of human history because it doesn't, what you just, the question you just asked, like to commit treason, what does that mean? It's like you went and informed some other legal system at the expense of this legal system. And now you've hurt your country, you know, whatever that means. So um, I don't know. It's very hard to talk about this and it's Plato's a great, example of this because it felt like yes. in the cave like we're in the cave of statism trying to yes, talk about yes. how to get out of the oh, cave yeah, but we're, we can well only speak said. the language of our status history i was talking with john stewart and um he uh just released a video and he's talking about the arc of biological evolution as you go through stages and there's competition and then it resolves into collaboration and integration. You have the unicellular organisms become the multicellular, and then the multicellular organisms become communities, and et cetera. And he was proposing something like that. He was proposing that, um, that w- he's not saying there's a teleology to evolution, but he's saying that every time, like you can point to what keeps getting selected for in evolution is the ability to move to a higher, y- a uh, higher unity. He calls it entification, uh, may, uh, the, the emergence of a new entity. Um, and it sounds like to me like you're proposing something very similar to that. I think that's what Bitcoiners, well, mm, that's what we would hope Bitcoin would become, right? Is a deeper right. unity amongst humanity that would transcend nationalism. And that doesn't mean you can't still have nations, but the nation state as this dominant organizational model or institution in the world today it only got that way because it has the monopoly on money so very simple another way to think about this i hope it lands but essentially roughly speaking every human organization is a business 
right? It's trying to accomplish some aim. It needs to have more economic inflows than outflows to be sustainable. Otherwise it goes away. Um, so said another way, every human organization that is a business is accountable to its profit and loss statement. It has to generate profits to survive, just like you have to have a caloric surplus to survive, you know, as, as an organism. Well, right. the exception to that is any institution that monopolizes money because now they can just print money to steal from everyone else and um, basically survive in perpetuity until that currency collapses. And so this right. has been something we've been locked in throughout human history. It's like monopoly on violence is established to preserve peace. They all, always monopolize money as well because it's essentially unlimited revenue to the point of hyperinflation. And then the currency gets debased or the coins get clipped in the case of ancient civilizations to the point of the currency not working anymore. The binding has been dissolved, right? The binding of civilization gets uh, literally inflated and dissolved, debased, and then civilization um, falls apart, reorganizes and starts over. So this, this, is, this description you're saying towards higher unification, I think, is what the hope that Bitcoiners have for Bitcoin is to be a form of unity uh, transcendent to nationalism, I guess. Okay, that's very helpful. I'm going to try and bring it back to Plato and Schindler uh, by saying one thing, and then maybe we can return to um, the, you, you know, the, your selections from the text that you'd like to discuss, because uh, we are running out of time. Uh, but I thought that that was very good. But just one more sort of final thought and, and hopes that it can. It sounds to me in the end that we are back to Murdoch's point, though, that we are not paying attention to money in the right way and not realizing it for what it is as at the core of your argument. Yes. I, I, yeah. One of two things, either we've underestimated the importance of money or we are, we are, or Bitcoin is more than money, I guess would be the other way to look at it. Right. It's like, it's right. a new social institution. That's really interesting. It's really interesting because you're, you've, you've made a move instead of talking about the just disposition of money, you're now talking about the just apprehension of money as being more fundamental than the first thing I just said, which has been typically how we have talked about it. And Mike, do you see what I'm trying to say? We've talked about justice in terms of we have this and how do we dispose of these funds? And you're saying that, you're not denying that that's important, but you're saying, at least I'm hearing you say, but what's much more fundamental is the just apprehension and attending to money because that right if you get that wrong it messes up the second in a dramatic way have i treated your argument fairly yeah i think you have um and it's you know the common conception today is that you have layer one which is government and then layer two your government issues your money right but that's not the reality of how we got to governments and money the reality is we settled down to become agriculturalists I think yes. it was to get drunk, by the way, not to eat food. <laughs> I think we liked producing wine and beer. So we decided to settle down. And then we started to create an economic surplus or savings. And we're trading with one another. To protect that economic surplus or savings, you need the institution of government. 
So it was it was trade and money that emerged first. Trade and money, like money is an emergent property of trade. So that exists before government. And then government as a monopoly, monopolist on force always tries to monopolize the money because that's the path of least resistance to uh, control populations, frankly, and tax them. Yeah. So it's if you use a software analogy, I what I guess one of the ways I'm trying to say this is that money is like the base layer operating system of human action, maybe something akin to religion, actually. And it's not any coincidence, perhaps, that we have all these religious motifs on our money. Right. If I pull out the U.S. dollar right now, it says in God, we trust. Right. There's this. Yes. There's this, uh, I guess, mythos that needs to be upheld to preserve the integrity of the currency, to preserve trust in the currency. And, and the opposite is also the case. We, we've always used gold in order to make things sacred to us. Um, right. Right. And so, yeah, that's interesting. You always make me think about uh, the relation. And this is what I meant. And I tried to mean it as like a, 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 as more than just sort of a, a label. You, you're trying to say something about the sacredness of money, which is nothing like the greed to possess of mu as much of it as you can. It's more what we're talking about here. It's having the just apprehension yeah. of its reality that is central to the just disposition of particular amounts of money or something like that. Yes. Which I that's a, that's a very powerful point. I, I hadn't seen that before in your argument. It's great, eh? When you, when, when you play in the platonic dojo, you often find that you are able to reach things that you couldn't otherwise reach. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. Uh, well, for me, walking out of economics and into Plato, especially this whole dichotomy between, well, it's not a dichotomy, but the absolute and the relative, the discussion of yeah, that, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Because, well, as we said in chapter one, relativism descends into justified violence, right? Yeah, yes. That's what fiat currency is, is there's just a bunch of relativists. You're just, how many dollars is a euro worth? How many euro, like there's no axiomatic point of absolute reference other than gold. That's what gold is yes. or was. Um, but now gold has sort of, that market has been manipulated in a whole lot of ways. So now we have Bitcoin as like, the actual discovery of an absolute money that could be the the central pole around which all other economic systems orient themselves. The last thing I'll say here, just is coming up, I don't know if you find it interesting or not, but I thought a lot about why money is religious in nature. And I'm not going to try to distill all of the utility of religion, but I think one use of religion is that it lowers the cost of trust. That if yeah. you and I are both Christian or we both attend the same church, like yes. we're much more likely to do business together. We're much more likely to go to battle together, whatever it is. We just, I know you share the same values as me. Therefore, you know, trust yeah. is very expensive to build and very easy to yeah. break. So something like religion can help scale trust. Yes. Well, money, money does something very similar, right? You, yes. you don't yes. need to trust me necessarily if I just, slide you a bag of gold coins like you'll go do the thing yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um yeah I, I by the way that is a hypothesis within the cognitive science of how religion may have evolved uh, i don't think it's a and you didn't claim it either i don't think it's a complete account by any means especially given everything we've been talking about but the idea that one of the things religion does in fact they talk about co costly display 
So I, I do these things like initiation rights and other things that are quite costly because I, I'm paying that sort of high personal cost because what, that, what that's basically saying is I deeply commit to the group and that means you can trust me in a, a profound way. And that of course has all kinds of uh, individual and shared cognitive benefits. Absolutely. Um, thank you for listening. Oh, nice, nice thing to say, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, thank you for the tangent and entertaining me. I don't know, you know, sometimes I'm sure maybe you've ever felt this way, like you're going down all these rabbit holes and you just don't know if you're crazy or what, but uh, well, it's fun. It's fun to ident try to identify these commonalities. I, I actually, I, I, I was using the dojo analogy a little bit deliberately you often do these weird things that seem tangential, but when you can go out and then come back to the core, you've often found, oh, wait, that wasn't a waste of time because that, well, that's the looping we've been talking about. I go beyond the art and I, well, as I understand it and bring something into it that changes me and changes my understanding and it grows. And that's what I meant about playing in the platonic dojo. I think it's important. I mean, you indulge, you have indulged me a lot with trying to carry this into cognitive science, right? And play and show how it does work there. I think it's only fair and right that I allow you to try to bring it into the, the you know, the connections you want to make and play with it and see if it helps to make things more intelligible, which it seems to be doing, which is again, what I mean about the platonic, neoplatonic framework as of creating the courtyard of dialogue as opposed to the courtroom yes. debate yes yes well i the pleasure is all mine let me tell you because i really really enjoy this process i will try to read an excerpt here that may be related to that um let's see i'm on 248 schindler writes the difference between the two conceptions of reason the philosophical and the sophistical comes to expression perhaps most directly in the relationship which implies to power yes according to both the republic and the letter seven we have as we have interpreted them reason is ordered to the real being of things which mean it has means it has its terminus in something absolute and irreducible to put the same point negatively if a thing were ultimately reducible to its relations it would no longer possess its own intrinsic being. The verb to be must be totally abolished. In that and situation. By, in yes. that situation. And by the same token, it would not represent an object for reason. Now, towards the end of this section here, he writes, now one of the implications of reason's reciprocal relation with the absoluteness of being is that reason itself must be in some respect absolute in order to be reason yes. as ordered to what is absolute. In other words, it cannot be subordinated to anything else within the order of meaning without surrendering its own integral structure. Um, let me see how much I wanted to read this. Okay. So, I get one just a speculation here. If reason is that which is ordered to the absolute, um, it seems like the state model is using the absolute of death to order human reason, 
right? It's it's the monopoly on violence. So right. it's it's the threat of force or coercion or death is kind of like the shadow that's yes. guiding us. But in this hypothetical post-state world, perhaps the absolute 21 million of Bitcoin could be like an alternative um, pillar for human organization, an alternative absolute for human organization rather than the threat of force or death. And it's, I know this sounds kind of maybe crazy, but one of the most interesting things about Bitcoin is when you get into the economics of violence language uh, or literature rather, and it describes how society, and we talked about this a little bit way back when you told me about the bronze age, how there was a sudden collapse. Yeah. Um, so the punchline there would be the the economics of violence tend to contribute to how we organize ourselves. Yes. And Bitcoin is basically this property right that's very hard to violate. So it makes coercion and violence and all these things much less profitable over time. So in that lens, perhaps the absolute nature of Bitcoin could be an alternative to the, the absolute of death that we've used to organize ourselves uh, since time immemorial, basically. So that's a very interesting proposal. If that were the case, and, and I'm, I'm not saying that if to challenge or dismiss, I'm like, let, let's take it seriously. Would that so change our participation in distributed cognition and shift, you know, our modal apprehension? Are we less in the having mode because, right, we, 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 we don't like, would all of those shifts help to shift us to being more rational in the way Plato and Schindler are talking about? But what I'm saying is, we, as we talked about in the, in the first series, you know, currency is a psychotechnology and it, and it helped to bring about the Axel revolution because it gets internalized into the very grammar, cultural grammar of how we think, et cetera. And then we explored the possibility if we were to change that and replace it with a different psychotechnology, that would also ultimately percolate into depths of the psyche and also permeate into people's lives. Are you making the argument, or would you like to make the argument, that if we made that change, that might help to, to realize or bring back or recover this notion of platonic rationality. Is that an argument you would like to make or, you're, or, or you are making? Well, I would say at least this, that to the extent lowering our time preference contributes yeah. to moving us from the having mode to the being mode. Right, right. I think sound money in general would definitely contribute to that just because Yes, you can save in something that you know is going to hold its value over time. So you get a longer time horizon. Okay, so th that's good. Because, you know, at towards the end of the book, Schindler returns back to that, right, where he, where he talks about the impulsivity. And, and we talked about that as mythology having at its core, a kind of intellectual impatience. That's a very so let me see if I get it right. So we make this change. And then, you know, it, it, it as I said, it percolates into our psyche, it permeates into our lives, that alters, right, uh, the temporal horizon, and that reduces all of the scarcity and, and forced threat pressure for us to be very, 
right? Very intellectually impatient. And then that opens up the possibility of shifting into the being mode that is central to trying to cultivate ratio religio. That's your yeah. argument, right? Yes, yes. And you, you've actually hit on something slightly more expansive that, yeah, by... So the lowering the time preference is important, but also giving people an option to get out of inflation and taxation. This is just basically in the libertarian philosophy, these are forms of theft. So the, the more you can insulate yourself from theft, the more capital you can accumulate. So you're also moving yourself towards that being mode. You have more freedom, ultimately more leisure. Right. Um, to I guess, you know, engage in spiritual or artistic pursuits. And the last piece to this that might tie to Plato is the intelligibility of the market is the pricing system, right? I, and when you print money, you're distorting that. You're putting uh, putting noise into the channel, yes. communication channel, which is pricing. So sound money would enhance the salience of price signals. Right, right. So and, you're getting and a salient- clearer picture, more wealth. And I, presumably people, lower time preference would move towards being mode, I think. Totally. I mean, scarcity mentality causes people to shorten, right? To, to become more, to engage in more hyperbolic discounting. They lose cognitive flexibility, uh, et cetera. That's really interesting. I, I, that's, I mean, that, that's just a really thought-provoking argument. I, I hadn't, I mean, I did after we had our last discussion, but that, it, it, it's, it's sort of deeper for me now that there might be a connection between a proper, I'm trying to use my words carefully, a proper currency and mythology that I hadn't thought of before, uh, which is a very, very interesting proposal. Yeah, it is. I would just, yeah, it's a proposal that I'm working on and I, I'm glad to hear it resonates with you because I really respect you as a thinker. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people coming at Bitcoin from a lot of different camps kind of coming to the same conclusion. And so there's this huge consilience of people that are not like me at all. They're approaching it from a totally different angle, but reaching the same conclusion that, you know, you fix the money, fix the world, as we say in Bitcoin. Yeah. So um, who knows? I guess we'll see. But, 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 but. John Ballas, you know, in some of the discussions with him, and you know, the opposite is the case. It's already having a transformation on people beyond, right? Sort of, I don't know what to call it, their economic life. It's having a spiritual trans. I mean, it's led you into this, which is really interesting. Uh, and, and so th- there is that that possibility. Also, the other side of that, the other yes. side of the coin, I was going to say, <laughs> which is the bad pun. But the other side, right, is, yeah, the fact that the way it liberates people's thinking doesn't just stay in that one area. It expands to these other domains. And, and, and that, so that's also preliminary evidence for your proposal, that part of it. As well. yeah, yeah, I would say maybe that's a case of the the emergence aspect. You know, there's a there's a bottom up emergence that people are waking yes. up to false realities, maybe or, or um, whatever things that are wrong in the world. But then the emanation is this single unifying idea, right? Of just 
you know, one hard money forever for everyone. So maybe that, yeah. there's some confluence occurring there, the, the emergence and the emanation. Um, okay. That was, that was, that was a really, uh, was very. Let me read this little digression. passage here. I'm going to continue where we're going. And I, I, there's a little bit of a punchline here that's related to what we're talking about, I think. <clears throat> so uh, I'll continue on. 249 and this is kind of a long excerpt on power that I'll, i'll read some selections from schindler writes thus reason must be at the same time more powerful than anything else and essentially powerless itself if it is to exist as reason at all the question of the integrity of reason in relation to its own specific work cannot be divorced from the place reason has in the general order of life If it is given a subordinate role in this order, it will cease to be an absolute means by which the truth of things becomes manifest. In other words, a society in which power trumps reason, things will no longer have a horizon, as it were, against and within which to manifest their intrinsic meaning. Yes. He goes on to write, Plato depicts the philosopher as one specifically without a desire for the power implied by political office. And in spite of the perhaps overly optimistic hope he pursued of bringing about a philosophically founded polis in Sicily, he was well known to have kept aloof from politics. There is in Plato's mind an ultimate and exclusive choice to be made. Either one pursues truth, i.e. the intrinsic meaning of things beyond one's control, or one pursues power in some form or another, i.e. the capacity to manipulate things for ends one determines for oneself. Yes. Just a few more here. Uh, Schindler goes on to write, self-election could be said to be the symbol of the pursuit of power and express in a nutshell why it is the opposite of truth. In contrast to this perfect reduction of the order of things to one's own determination, pure relativity, Truth is comprehensive and essentially irreducible to such relativity. Mm-hmm. He goes on to write, ultimately, he says, truth and power must coincide. But the only way for them to coincide without eliminating the exclusive alternatives just presented is for the ruling office to be imposed on one who has renounced it. That is yes. to be a thing received rather than seized. In this way, power becomes not the opponent, but the servant of truth, insofar as it is embraced within the obedience that is intrinsic to reason's ecstatic nature. Almost done here. He goes on to write, the identification of power with explicit office may be seen as connected with sophistry. And further down, he writes, perhaps the best way to interpret this is that the political dimension of the philosopher's rule takes the form of bringing the authority of the good to bear in the public sphere in a manner appropriate to it. Finally, he writes, to make power a servant of reason rather than the reverse is to transform the meaning of power. Yes. So this is is what's behind the, the famous platonic argument of the philosopher Kick. Right, right. And so, you know, power kind of a muddy term but if i look at it in just a physics sense which is just the capacity to do work over time yes which again is what we're doing in the economic process we're trying to increase our physical power in the world or 
our yeah. utilization of energy, if you will. Well, Bitcoin is something that makes power a servant of reason rather than the sophistic reverse. So, so therefore, if he's right, then it's transforming the meaning of power. Uh, and now that maybe that, that probably didn't land because there's a... No, no, keep going. Bitcoin mining is, you know, you're, you're converting energy into money, basically. There's this open yeah. market competition. Yeah. You can, you're competing to solve a mathematical puzzle, expending energy to solve the puzzle. And then the right. winners of that contest are rewarded in Bitcoin. Right. It's transforming our relationship with physical power very fundamentally. Yes. But it's putting it at the service of reason, which the reason is just like fair and equitable rules for all, right? It's like you yeah. can hold a form of property that no one can can change. You have an absolute property right to some extent. Um, so it seems like to be an inversion where, and, and this also seems, maybe this is the purpose of things like the US constitution, right? We knew that you couldn't put all the power in one place. You had yes. to decentralize it to some extent and have some reasonable mode of resolving uh, itself. So we were, we've been trying to put power under reason for a long time. Right. Um, uh, but it just seems like this might be another uh, step forward, I guess, in that respect. There's two, there was two things you said there. So the first is that um, so Bitcoin is trying to put power in service of reason because Bitcoin your other argument has been it tries to get at it tries to be in service to the reality of what money is as opposed to just how we can use it relative to our particular goals that's what i've heard you say repeatedly. yes and you could also say uh back to you we said proper apportionment or or when you described justice yeah. earlier rather that getting what one deserves like property like proper is of, of attention yeah yes uh, well, you, you mentioned some author that said justice is essentially treating something with what it deserves. The way that's that's Murdoch. Yes. yes. Murdoch. So maybe that's the more uh, potent framing for it is that you just you can find we have finally have a property that nobody can violate. It's very easy to violate your U.S. dollar bank account property. It's very easy to take your land. It's very easy to seize your business. Governments have done all of this across all of recorded history. But now if you hold Bitcoin, you hold a private key. It's just information. It's a form of property no one can really take from you. Um, so I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to give you that more no, no, fundamental no, that, sense that it's it's like it's it's reason in the sense that it's a pure justice. It takes work to that. obtain it, and then nobody can take it from you. And that I, I get that, but I was trying to. You you've also been making an argument though that it, it it's it, it, it's an active disillusionment about what money is it's re it's removing all kinds of illusions and to plato's argument those illusions empower all kinds of abuse and, yes. and, right so it seems to me that, that that's actually more primary because it's you know it, in one sense it's protecting you right uh, i i get what you're saying but in another sense more profound sense right by by orienting us away from certain illusions about what money is and what it's doing. That's the name of your show, in fact. What is money, right? Uh, right. That that is binding us in a way so that our power is always bound by a a deep realization. And please, you'll know how I'm using that word of what we need money to be for us, or something like that. But that is also 
right? Trying to tie into just some fundamental properties that it has to have in and of itself. Like part of what I hear you saying and why you keep making the analogy is, right? There's an in itselfness to Bitcoin that we can't mess with, right? That we can't mess with. And that, that, that makes us always, we can't reduce it to how is it relevant to me? We always have to always say, but how am I relevant to it? That, that's what I'm hearing you say. And that would be that the power is always in the service of the right relationship with the reality of the phenomenon. That's what I'm trying to say. Does that land yes. for you? Yes, it does. It's, um, I don't want to sound too wild, but it is, it's pure justice, right? Or it's pure symmetry. Um, maybe, hmm. I'm going to take a stab and jump forward and yes. read an excerpt that I also wrote something. You got me really excited now that your, your wheels are turning on Bitcoin. So now I want to jump to all my Bitcoin excerpts and read them to you. Um, okay. So I jumped to page 264 and Schindler writes, the reason image making is so quick is that it involves no real difficulty and it involves no difficulty essentially because it is superficial. It does not seek to get to the core of things, but is content to capture how they appear. Yes. Now I would analogize image making to this idea of counterfeiting currency or inflating the currency. That oh, you're course. just making new images, more dollars, right? Control P, there's 600 trillion new US dollars in the economy. There's no new, no new factories, no new equipment, no new knowledge. We just increase the money supply. So it's image making, right? In its most extreme sense. And right, it's, what, make, it's, make, it's making the appearance super salient so that it excludes the reality. That's what I hear you say. Yes. It's bullshit. It's, it's bullshit, bullshit. In, a profound, in a profound way. Yes, I, and in Bitcoin, we would say we call this proof of work, right? You have to have proof of work to create new money. That's what mining gold was. That's what mining Bitcoin is. Right. So when you violate, when you get into just money that's image making or just fiat that can just be printed, if there's no work necessary to produce that, then it's being used to steal the work of others. So you're, you're making the, the, the claim that a lot of our currency is, you know, Baudrillard's simulcra. It's a simulation, but there's no origin that the simulation is attached to. Like, and, and, and that's Plato's concern. When we get images of images of images, yes. we get in the, the hyper, what's called the hyper real. I don't like that term. I think it's a, a bad term, but hyper reality. Like yeah. Yeah. But, but that's because I think it should be used in a totally different way, but yeah. nevertheless, right. The, this idea of this removal and we, we, we're, 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 we're sort of spun in this thing that is not connected. Um, yes. And he, I'll, sorry, I'll just read this one last part for you. No, I, I'm just trying to make sure I'm understanding you. That's all. No, you're, okay, you're right on. Um, <clears throat> he goes on to write, the reason for the ease and speed of sophistic image making, such as Plato presents it, is due to an indifference to reality. Right. If, That's the core of bullshit. Yeah. That's the core of bullshit, the yes. indifference to the truth. Yes. yes. But if image making is easy, the good by its nature is by nature hard. In the sophist, Plato explains that appearances and argument are corrected by actual relations to things 
suffered and experienced over time. And he goes on to write, like love, patience is essentially relational or intentional. If knowledge requires transcendence of self, as we have argued, then real knowledge cannot come quickly. Yeah. So there's this there's this term in economics called easy money and hard money. Easy money is the fiat that you just control P and create more of. And hard money is honest money. It's gold, right? It's Bitcoin. You have to actually expend energy to earn the energy that money uh, is a claim to. Right. So right. this seemed like a really loud way of Plato <laughs> annihilating the concept of, of fiat currency and highlighting the importance of proof of work. That's a powerful argument. Um... I, I, I like I, I I think it's uh, I think it's an insightful application. I've I've never I've never seen this. Um, Plato is typically applied to science or to religion or to theology or to art or even to our romantic relationships or friendship, all very powerfully. But you're making an argument about. Uh, trying to make use of platonic arguments uh, in order to deeply distinguish Bitcoin from fiat currency. I, 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 I don't, I, I don't have, I don't have anything uh, other to say that, like, what I'm just trying to understand it and explicate it and bring it out. So, do you again? I guess the one question that's similar to the question I asked before, if that fund, and I don't want want to sound like a crypto Marxist or anything like that. Uh, like if that fundamental economic relationship is changed, it's plausible that that would also transfer back to these other domains where we see this platonic framework also being applied. Uh, because for me, that would be the existential, you know, what to call it, proof of concept of your argument, right? If it starts to bleed, like we said, if it starts to reduce mythology, if it makes people more patient in general, if it, if, it, if it tutors them uh, to not go for the, the quick fix or the superficial image, but to pursue things in depth, then that, would, that to me would start to make your argument very convincing to me. I'm not saying your argument isn't already a good one. Do you understand what I'm saying though? That if I could I do. see that, I would say, oh yeah, yeah. Then, you know, Robert was really on to uh, something like the ontological depth uh, of of this discussion uh, when he was trying to do this. Well, I um, yes, and but you know, I'm not. By the way, make I'm not even trying to make a claim necessarily. I'm really trying to just uh, you know speculate and hypothecate what could happen here. There's yeah. something going on, and so we're all trying to figure it out. Like what's going on with this thing? But this seems to be the platonic work you've introduced me to seems to be most fundamentally addressing that because it's the question of this, the relationship between the absolute and the relative. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. And that, like you said, that resonates across a lot of domains. Yes. But maybe we didn't have the, I don't know, equipment to talk about this before Bitcoin because we didn't have absolute money. We had a semi, we had a relative absolute gold was a relative absolute. Yeah. Like yeah. no matter we, tried to make a lot of things in the world. Well, gold was the hardest thing to make, basically. So that's why it became money. Now right, we have something right. that's absolutely hard to make. We can't make any more of it. They just discovered, by the way, I don't know if you read this, 
13 trillion dollars worth of gold in uganda we just discovered this like two weeks ago right, that's right. that's the market cap of gold globally is like 12 trillion dollars so we just discovered we just doubled the supply of gold with one discovery in uganda right okay so well that means gold doesn't really work as sound money i mean not as well as bitcoin at least because you're not going to discover any more bitcoin in uganda right right so, right right um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would just express a lot of gratitude to you for even getting me to this place where it's like, oh, wow, this, we call this going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, but, um, and, you know, you're always trying to check yourself. Like, am I just making connections where there aren't connections? But it seems yeah. like there's something here if it's the actual discovery of absolute scarcity and this, uh, this relationship that Plato keeps coming back to between the relative and the absolute. Well, I mean, and I like the fact that you're willing for long periods of time, and I don't mean in any kind of forced fashion, you, you want to participate in discussing things other than Bitcoin in depth. Um, and for me, that's very important too, because it means you're actually trying to make deep connections as opposed to just trying to drag everything down to Bitcoin, if I can put it that way. Right. right? Yeah, I don't, I, I, am, I am attempting to be as he and i didn't know this until reading plato but actually be in pursuit of the truth right i'm not trying to sell anyone yeah. bitcoin here i know it yeah. may seem that way at times we talk about it a lot but it's just it's a fascination you know there's a lot of people captivated by this thing nobody understands the implications of it and we're just all trying to figure it out well i mean if if, if you'll allow me you're, you're proposing something and you're making it plausible rather than preposterous you're, you're, if you're, it sounds to me like you're proposing that Bitcoin is the platonic form of money, which is a really interesting ontological claim to make. I wanted to ask you if there's anything, have we ever, okay, I did read this example recently, the, um, the work of Lorenz, Lorenz, the strange attractor. You've, you've heard of, uh, I'm sorry. All right. No. So Lorenz is a, a chaos theory guy or complexity theory yeah. guy. He had the water wheel. Yeah. And I, I'm not going to do this perfect justice, but basically there's a water wheel with 10 little buckets on it. And then if you increase the flow of water, this water wheel can go into these um, weird, very, very yeah, yeah. erratic patterns. But then when that, it almost looked chaotic, but then when they plotted the patterns on a three-dimensional graph, space. Yeah, yes, state space, diagram. state yeah. space, it, it, it's this beautiful pattern called a strange attractor. Yeah. Yeah. And so yes, people yes, had made yeah. arguments that, through chaos theory, we had found the realm of the forms to some extent. Yes, yes, and I think there's truth to that. I think that we realized the strange attractor is a through line what, what, through what looked like a cacophony, and we realized, no, no, there's yes. a through line in this, and when we grasp it, we get a, a depth of understanding of the phenomena that we didn't have before. Yes, very much, very much. Yeah, so that, I mean, that was the only other example I had I had ever heard of where we had some direct interface with the realm of the forms, perhaps, but I wanted to right. ask you if there's anything else that you knew of. Well, I think there's lots. I, 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 I mean, we've been exploring a lot of them here. I've been trying to show how the forms are not strange, abstract things in purely conceptual space. They're in the guts of our phenomenology. They're in the guts of, of reason and love and how we fundamentally try to make sense and connect the world. That's what I've been trying to do throughout is to 
uh, you know, bring it out of a, I'll put this in quotes, platonic heaven, and actually show you that it's, it's not that. It is not this up. It's through, through, through. And the, the resonant reciprocal, I've been trying to give many examples throughout our whole discussion of like how we can find the platonic forms in the very sinews and ligaments of how we, like, of our intelligence and how it couples to the intelligibility of the world. That's been my argument throughout, in fact. And, and you've done a wonderful job. I should clarify my question a bit. Um, when I saw the mathematical representation of the strange attractor, it was like looking at the realm of the forms, you know? Yes, yes. And when yes, I look yes. at the Bitcoin blockchain and its perfect supply curve, like it just does its own thing. You know what? Nobody can change it. It just yes. does what it's, I'm like, okay, am I looking at forms here? Like it's, it's something that was, how do I say it? It's something that is just independent of us, I guess, kind of like the sun, right? It just, it's, it has its own sovereignty. Yes. Well, I mean, if currency is the information flow of a dynamical system, presumably there are attractors within it pointing to constraints, enabling and selective constraints. And that that might mean that there is something, yeah, in, in the way we've been talking about it, platonic about how we should understand currency. I've never put those two together. The platonic tradition has a long tradition of, you know, considering currency filthy lucre, right? It's, you know, the, the people in, in, engaged in money are just motivated by sort of their appetites and their passions. Um, and, 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 and so Plato does not uh, address this, but what you're trying to do is move it off that and you're trying to understand the fundamental principles um, at work and what is the form of money. I mean, that's, it's almost like you're changing the question that's the title of your show in a really <laughs> profound and interesting way. Well, uh... Only here in the courtyard of Dialogos would that yeah. question be changed because I did not reach it on my own. Look, uh, sorry, we're we've probably got forty minutes left. Do you want to do a five yeah. minute break and come back? And I don't, I didn't mean to hijack the conversation on Bitcoin here. I would love no, to try to Robert. Robert, you've been extremely generous um, in letting me, you know, take Schindler and make all these connections, and then try and use it to understand Schindler. I feel it's only fair that I reciprocate, uh, right? And and so and and, it, it, and I found it interesting. And I I like and the fact that you sort of agree that you're sort of proposing that there's a platonic form of money. Uh, I, I I just think that's a fascinating. And then that that has implications for treating money justly and being just in relationship to it, and thereby more just with ourselves and with each other. Like in, in, in concrete cognitive terms, like reducing the temporal horizon so we're less prone to mythology and intellectual impatience. That's all, that's a fascinating and provocative thing to say. It was not a hijacking at all. <laughs> well, I'm really happy, thrilled, honestly, to hear you say that. Um, but I do want to give Schindler his due here. And we are yeah. well behind on our outline now, but I guess if we try to wrap <laughs> up in 40 minutes. Well. And I mean, it's also good because, you know, you know, I want to be, I don't want to seem like I'm negligent towards your audience also. Um, and so I want to thank you for do, allowing me 
uh, you know, to discuss with you this because it does help make connections to your audience, um, yes. which which Socrates always does. Yeah. Right. Socrates always adjusts, and I don't mean this in a contemptuous fashion right. at all. He always adjusts to his interlocutor and where his like he's a general or he's a military person yes. or he this or that and socrates always adjusts to that and then works with that and so yeah i i i i, I i'm 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 happy we we got to do this no me too and it's yeah like a true philosopher right he's curating his he's becoming as transparent to the truth as he can for his yes audience right and i appreciate that which makes him simultaneously very powerful and powerless totally, <laughs> right totally yeah, yeah. <laughs> thing hit me like a bomb when i read it the first time that the whole thing is the structural the structure of the dialogue is intended to uh speak about <laughs> the nature of dialogue in a way it's so yes. meta yes. and mind-bending um <laughs> is there anything else you want to try to get into the last 35 minutes here well, in connection with that, the, you know, um, the inadequacy and indispensability of images, because the, as you just said, the Republic is an image of, right, of right. dialogue. Yeah. Um, and the idea, you know, the distinction of the imaginary and the imaginal and, and how that, I, I think Plato is, or, 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 or at least, Schindler on Plato's behalf is is moving in towards the imaginal as opposed to the imaginary, mm. uh, and I think that distinction that comes from Corbin, and he was, by the way, a profound Neoplatonist. Um, mm. That um, and he was, of course, serious uh, interlocutor and discussant with Jung, um, and you began this whole series with uh, a Jungian mm -hmm. quote. So there's mm -hmm. lots of there's lots of connections there, uh, but the, I think that distinction can help us get past um, some of the truncated notions of rationality and some of the reactions to it, like we find in decadent romanticism. Not all romanticism, but the, the decadent romanticism that's very pervasive in our culture right now. Uh, I'll read an excerpt from page three hundred seven here. Context then is just about everything. It's a very powerful sentence right there. Yes. But to affirm this, we must recall is just to say that truth is the whole. To be concerned with the whole is to pay attention to the arrangement of parts. We argued in chapters two and three that the twofold nature of goodness requires a dramatic presentation, that only a complex plot involving the ascending continuous pursuit and the discontinuous reversal, the surprise that is both unanticipated and fulfilling, can bring light to the whole of the good in a non-reductive manner. Yeah. And I was just reminded here again of literature, right? We talked about The Sixth Sense, I think, yesterday. It's yeah, film, yeah, not literature, yeah. but somewhat similar. Yeah. Um, is it that dialogue or this dramatic structure is mapping onto this feedback driven complex reality that we inhabit where you know in biology yeah. it's there's not there's not 
unidirectional causation, everything's feedback, right? It's all procession and reversion. Yeah. That that dramatic structure is just what maps onto that. Yes. Yes. And so, and and this picks Alicia Uraro in dynamics and action to really seriously integrate uh, dynamical systems theory with 4E cognitive science says that what narrative does, it's not that, right? Narrative gets our cognition. It shapes our cognition into the form (laughs) that is needed in order to track, right? Dynamical systems. And so while it may look like silly superstition that, you know, this this group of people are using narrative to try and relate to the forest myth, right? And, and we can, of course, right, totally just take apart the myth with rational, with our rational tools, rational in that computational sense, tools. What we're, what, because we are stupidly focusing on the propositional to the exclusion of the way this is accessing the procedural, the perspectival, and the participatory, and doing a ratio religio so that these people can actually trace the complex dynamics of the ecology of their environment. We are actually the people that are behaving unintelligently and relatively irrational in that context. And so Plato is making that case. So for him, the form and the content have to have that you can't understand contemplative reason if it is not having a perspectival and participatory transformation on you. It's not shifting you at those levels. And only the dramatic structure in which we both identify and disidentify with characters, we follow the plot only to get it re- reversed. We get the foreshadowing, but we get the retros. Only that can actually properly integrate all the non-propositional with the propositions that are making up the arguments in Plato. And so when, and, and Schindler is so brilliant at this, right? He just keeps showing you how it's nested that you know, Plato keeps at every level you see, well, scansi intuitiva, you see the whole dialogue in each move and you see how each move fits into the whole dialogue and you get this and you had it, you had that, whoa, and then that it's world, fractal, it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you get that, and then and you're involved in it, and you're participating in it, and it, and it's and it's a reciprocal insight. It's not an only an insight into the work, the text. It's an insight into you and how you make sense of things, and and then you're getting to participate in the actual activity of the good. Yes, it is overwhelming. I think I've used that word a million times by now. I want to read just a couple of excerpts here that give an audience uh, a sense for the encoding of this dramatic structure into the Republic. Uh, I'm at the bottom of 307. He says, Brumbau provides a solid guiding principle for interpretation, proposing that the Republic, like many of the later dialogues, reflects structurally the method the dialogue describes. Yes. He notes, as others have, that there is a clear symmetry of structure. All the other themes discussed in the first half of the Republic receive another treatment in a slightly different form in the second half. All that is, but the good. 
It is the only major subject treated just once, and his treatment lies in the center of the dialogue as a whole. Isn't that astonishing? Like, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, like, uh, I don't know. We didn't figure this out until thousands of years later. I, this interpretation, I, I think, at least. I, no, I mean, I mean, I don't want to take anything away from Schindler, and and I haven't read this other author that he's citing. Is it is I just want to get the name right, uh, Brumbaugh, uh, but the third wave, there's a whole bunch of these people. I mentioned them, Gonzalez, Highland, you know, a, a bunch of these people uh, doing this. And there's one sense in which, you know, it's the third wave and, and it's right, bringing all of this in that we're talking about. And, and it's therefore new and recent and we should give lots of credit to the brilliance of these people. But if you look in the Neoplatonic tradition, they're doing this with the texts and they're pushing for the third wave and uh, pushing for something at least conciliant with the third wave that, uh, that we're experiencing now. So for me, uh, that's why I keep coming back to, I see a lot of what is being made salient and foregrounded and sized up by this new scholarship, finding something, some very, very deep, think very deep consiliences within the Neoplatonic tradition, which I keep bringing out. And the fact that it wasn't wasn't just about discourse; it was primarily bound up with contemplative practices and meditative practices, dialectical practices, ethical practices, of course, etc. And this is what 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 I keep. Uh, keep saying that it's both, that's why I'm trying to get with the inventio, right? It's, it, it's both something we're discovering and making, but it's also, we're recovering something that we have some degree lost when around the end of the Renaissance. And as we went into the, especially the dominance of nominalism and the Protestant Reformation, they're influencing each other and the scientific revolution, and they're all influencing each other. And this, the Neoplatonic interpretation of Plato was basically dismissed and pushed to the margins. And this idea of concentrating on the argumentation of the propositions uh, came to the fore, like it did in everything else. So the answer is yes and no to your question, right? Uh, a lot of these people are, and I think Shinda would agree with me on what I'm just saying, by the way, that because I know he thinks that Aquinas was reading Plato and Plotinus this way and, and other Thomistic scholars uh, like Sebastian Morello and others are making a very strong case for that. Uh, Clark is making a, a strong case for that. So it's both old and new in that way. Which is platonic in and of itself, right? All yes, knowledge of is course. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'll read one more little excerpt here just to give one more sense of this encoding. It's so fascinating. The first half we could say presents ish presents issues prior to the inbreaking of the good and the introduction of the philosopher. The treatments here will tend to possess a certain provisional character, unfolding the way things are from the perspective of ecasia and belief. Right. The second half, by contrast, will unfold a view of the whole from top to bottom, starting from the absoluteness of philosophy. On the other yes. side, then, there is a gradual ascent to the absolute, and on the other side, a descent from the absolute to the furthest extremities of the relative. 
from philosophical rule through governmental decay to tyranny, and then finally to the realm of pure appearance. Right. Complete understanding, we recall, must also descend from the unhypothetical first principle. The philosopher must return to the cave. Yes. And so on, on the first side, yeah, you get the ascent. And then the second, uh, yes. And so reading the dialogues is a spiritual exercise for me. And I would, and this is something I got from Pierre Hadot, and I would recommend that that's how they should be read. And again, this is a Neoplatonic proposal that first of all, we are trying to indwell and internalize Socrates because as we discussed last time, he is the symbol, right? In the Platonic sense of the good. And then as we indwell and internalize the dialogical form and its dramatic structure, we also are, right? We are, we are apprenticing ourselves to the kind of comportment we need in order to cultivate ratio religio in the deepest possible way. And so that's why, I, you know, and Plato for me is a sacred text in that way because I can return to Plato again and again. And because of this nested fractal, fractal structure, I can discover more and more and more. Uh, and um, to me, those, those masterpieces that continually, continually fulfill our promise that if we live them, we will be changed. And then when we come back, we will see in the text that we haven't seen what well, something we haven't been seen before and then we'll be empowered to live even more deeply and it's so far and of course that's the anagoge and that's coming out of the cave so the, the fact that plato is writing this way is an attempt to engender in us a momentum into that reciprocal opening into that anagoge into that dialectical practice that can lead into a dialogical existence I love that you use the verb apprenticing because that is really, yeah. it's, it's perfect. And um, I'm just blown away that someone could have figured all of this out <laughs> and put it into <laughs> a book. It is, I can only imagine who, I, I guess we don't know much about his influences as far. I know there's, I read it in Pearl. He talked about, uh, is it Plotinus and one other gentleman that influenced Plato? No, it's the other way around. Oh, uh, Plato, Plato's much earlier than Plotinus. Oh. And he has, so uh, Plato is, of course, deeply influenced by Socrates. Um, he's deeply influenced by- and Socrates Carmenid. didn't write, right? Yeah, no. As far as we know, he right. did not write anything. Uh, there's lots of people who write about him. Plato, Xenophon, um, um, uh, uh, Aristophanes. Um, but- so the influences are Socrates. The, uh, he's deeply influenced by Parmenides, who tends to emphasize the absolute, the right, the one, and Heraclitus, who tends to emphasize how everything's in motion and relative and change. Although even Heraclitus talks about the binding through line of the logos. Do not listen to me. Do not listen to my words, but listen to the logos and realize that everything is one. That's Heraclitus. So he's finding, and so Plato is. He's, he's, he's putting, he's synthesizing, putting together, not just synthesizing, it's almost like the left and right fields of vision integrating into depth perception. He's doing the stereoscopic integration of Heraclitus 
and Parmenides with Socrates at the center. And then Pythagoras is a huge influence. And, 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 and essentially, especially about the, the mathematical musicality of intelligibility. Yes, yes. Notice we keep, we keep using mathematical musical images to try and get at what we're talking about. And those are the primary influences on Plato. Got it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Pythagoras came up for me when I was writing the piece on the zero and Bitcoin, because they were very much uh, fascinated with, they considered form to be musical, I think, um, in, in a and, lot of and, ways. Yeah. 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 And, and, and math to be, because math was geometry, math was spatially extended, especially for Music. the Pythagoreans. And so they, they, they had a sense of, the world was made out of math and music in some really it's difficult for us we can't quite get what they were talking about but you can clearly see the influence on plato and and pythagoras is like socrates he's this weird almost shamanic figure um and he stands right on the boundary between philosophy and religion he's the uh, uh pythagoras gave us the word philosopher he gave us the word cosmos, oh. um, and he really uh, he emphasized sort of a kind of soul flight, shamanic soul flight, which I think also really powered Plato's interest in self transcendence, and wow. why Plato often wow. uses flight metaphors when he's trying to talk about uh, the anagogic process. Interesting. Okay, I'm going to jump ahead to page three twenty six now. Uh, and I'll read a quick excerpt. Now, this image does not substitute for discursive reasoning, which we see already in the fact that Socrates explains the significance of various aspects of this image to his yeah. interlocutors. Without his explanation, the image would, would, of course, lie there dumb. But it is equally the case that a simpler account of its meaning will never do complete justice to everything in it or exhaust its significance. Yes. Explanation and image, logos and mythos, I think maybe yes. that's the wrong word. Just like words and deeds work in tandem to make manifest a whole truth. And it is this whole that the soul essentially desires. I'm not sure if I got logos and mythos correctly because they're written in Greek. I'm pretty sure logos is right, but I'm not sure about the second. No, you got it right. Logos okay. and mythos. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so yeah, that this is on the the there's a synergy, I guess, between explanation and image. Or uh, they're woven together in dialogue. Look at look at how much right. we move between. Again, I would argue because we are trying to constantly align and integrate. Remember, we talked about um, understanding as grasping the significance. Well, there's a kind of understanding in which you're grasping the significance within propositional knowing and within procedural knowing. You know how this skill fits the situation. But there's also a significance between the kinds of knowing that binds them. And that's a profound kind of understanding. Uh, that's the kind of understanding you when you attribute to somebody, you know, a, a, a wisdom about something. Um, and so the the interplay between image and we have to remember the image includes like the structure of the dialogue. It includes the drama, the drama. 
right? But the interplay between the image, that's why he uses this comprehensive term mythos and the logos. Where again, the logos is not logic, remember? That's the reduction we're trying. So you've got the logos being everything and then the mythos and they're bound together and they interpenetrate. And that's been happening throughout our, our discussion as we try to understand um, the, 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 the dialogue and, 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 you know, and Socrates. And for me, this, I, I, I gave a talk, it was an invited lecture at Cambridge, it's on my channel for those of you who are interested, about uh, the interpenetration of rationality and ritual, where ritual is not just a mindless neurotic thing, but it's a dramatic enacted, a form of imagery, right? Enacted mythos that is actually interwoven with what we prototypically think of as rationality. Um, let me try to give you one example, and it, 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 it attaches to stuff we've been talking about already. Um, so we've talked about overcoming hyperbolic discounting, the temporal horizon, and how that's connected on one side to mythology, the hatred of the logos, right? And we just did that a few minutes ago. Okay, so keep that, right? But now think about um, what, 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 uh, what we also talked about, you know, about part of rationality is how to properly moderate hyperbolic discounting, its adaptivity. Okay, so you go in, this has been done in, in, in many different co contexts. Hirschfeld talks about this and other people, and this is experimental work I'm gonna to refer to. You go in, and you make a really sound, and I mean this seriously, financial economic argument to academics with evidence that they should start saving for the future now. And you give them all kinds of graphs and everything, and they all go, yes, excellent, very well done. Yes, yes. You come back in six months and none of them are saving for the future, okay? Now, you do this, in not, not in place of, but in addition to the arguments, you get them to imagine their relationship to their future self because why people aren't saving for the future is they don't want to be religio. They don't want to be bound to that future self because that future self is old and ugly and prone to sickness. But if you reconfigure it, so you get the proper proportioning of attention, so the religio is say, well, don't think of it. Think of that future person as an elderly member of your family that you love and you want to care for. And the more vividly you can do that, the better. And you get two results. When you do that, people start saving. And the more vividly they can imagine, and think about how that's this religio, right? Ratio religio, that future person, the more vividly they can imagine it, the more they will save. So this is the imaginal. So, so the problem with the word imagination is it covers these two things and Corban distinguishes between them. The imaginary is when we use images in our head and what we're doing is pulling ourselves away from reality, okay? And, and, and there's a role for that, right? Or, you know, creativity. But the imaginal is the use of imagery, not in your head, but enacted in order to enhance 
your perception of reality. So let me give you first a prototypical instance of the imaginal. The imaginary is when I ask you, imagine a sailboat, and then I can ask you, are it sails up or down? And you can answer me, right? Now, compare that to a child who picks up a stick, right, and ties a blanket around them and says, I am Zorro. They're not forming a mental image. What they're doing is they're trying to take the perspective of Zorro and they're trying to adopt the agent arena relationship so they can engage in a serious play of realizing certain capacities that they have. Serious play is how all intelligent mammals actually develop. When you use imagination for the sake of perception, when you have imaginally augmented perception, right? This, this is what the imaginal is. So for example, when I'm teaching Tai Chi and I want people to stand in the correct stance, first of all, I just do some, you know, bend your knees, tuck in your coccyx. And then I say, okay, I want you to imagine that you're standing in a river and from your knees to your feet sinking into the mud. You don't want to skim the surface of the floor. You want to sink. And from your, your knees to your Dantean around your navel, that's like the flowing water of the river. You want that part of you to feel like flowing water. It's got all this flexibility, but it's got force. And then from here up, this is like the air. You want it to feel as airy as possible, right? You want it to almost dissolve away. And when people do that, they start to become, they are enabled to perceive, right? Kinesthetic, proprioceptic, small muscle movements in ways that they couldn't if I just told them how to move their body. That's imaginally augmented perception. That's imagination for the sake of perception. Does that, does that make sense? Right? And so that's what's happening with the people, the academics. They are doing, in, they're using imagination not to drift away from a reality they need to face, but it, it actually enhances their capacity to conceive perceive and even religio bind themselves to their future self and see how that is so central to being rational if you can't overcome and we've talked about this already hyperbolic discounting your rationality is extremely truncated but all of the propositional argument all the presenting of the data does not lead these trained academics to save any money but the imaginal right this this ritual aspect actually affords it happening and that's what I think Schindler is trying to point to. The, the dialogue is imaginal. It's an image that helps us to perceive what Plato is trying to make us aware of. Wow, that is really powerful. What is the book you mentioned on the imaginal versus imaginary? There isn't a book. Oh. Uh, it's, uh, there's, a, there's an essay uh, mm. and, and, and many essays there are books, but there's an essay by Henry Corbin, C-O-R-B-I-N, in which he makes a distinction between the imaginal and the, ima the imaginary and the imaginal. But if you want a, book, a good book on Corbin, I recommend strongly two books by Thomas uh, Cheatham, C-H-E-E-T-H-A-M, uh, A World Turned Inside Out, and then the, you'll like the title of the next book, Imaginal Love. Mm. Um, and you'll see that that resonates so much with everything we've been talking about. And so I was trying to show, I mean, there's more to ritual than just that, but this, mm. this idea 
of imaginally augmented perception that affords the serious play that gets us into the momentum of development. Right. A ratio religio that is so central to contemplative rationality. And see, see, they have to contemplate their future self in the right way. Yes. Yeah, no, that is great, great example there. I, I did some therapy at one point a few years ago. And um, one of the things that came up was I had really stern self-talk. Yeah. You know, when you make mistakes, yes. you're like, what, what did yeah. you do wrong? And then one of the things he had me do, uh, the therapist was just talk to myself as if I were talking to my daughter, right. To yes. like a loving yes. child and yes. just that simple little tweak. Yes. So effective yes. in life. Like I had such a better yes. relationship with myself just as that, which is an imaginal thing, I guess. Right. I'm kind of putting myself yes. in a different role. It's to, to, to even put a more of a finer point on it. Robert, it's an imaginal dialectical, dialogical right. thing, right? Right. You're doing this imagination, the, the imaginal, and then you're doing the back and forth yes. session. And then it takes on a life of its own and takes you to places you yes. couldn't get at when yes. you're just ruminating and reasoning, right? Yes, exactly. no, you're absolutely right because it's you're not only in, in your self-talk, you're the parent and the child, right? Yes. You're yes. Like, okay, buddy, we need to go do this. And then we'll, I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll yeah, reward yeah. you with something else. Yeah, very much. Yeah. You internalize the whole process. It's incredible. Um, that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I will read one more little excerpt here just on the images thing. On 327, Schindler writes, the real knower is different from the dreamer, not because he remains outside the cave, but because he believes there is something fair itself and is able to catch sight both of it and of what participates in it and doesn't believe that what participates is is it itself nor that it itself is what participates again the true is the whole the most comprehensive philosopher therefore has to be like a child begging for both and say that which is everything is both the unchanging and that which changes, both invisible forms and tangible images. And the, and the invocation of the child and, and Plato invo invokes, and I think in a couple of places, Schindler even uses the phrase, serious play, the serious play. This, is, this, this point is really important to me about both the inadequacy and the indispensability of the imaginal, the enacted imaginal as the ritual and how, you know, the love, the right, and, 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 and reason are bound together, the, the rational and the ritual, the, the rational and, and love, the, right, all the things, like they're all interpenetrating. I reflect on this because I, I'm trying to, understand how I can cultivate the right virtue and virtuosity to talk to people within, and I hope this doesn't sound condescending because I do not want it to be, and I do not intend it to be. How do I talk to people who are within a religious tradition that I do not belong to? Uh, because I want to, I, 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 I want to somehow understand both the indispensability of the imagery and the inadequacy in a way that is fair to the images, the way we're trying to be fair to Plato's use 
of the image. Uh, and, and of course, you, you can get people, you know, you can get fundamentalists who just claim, you know, an absoluteness. For, their images are, are, are totally adequate and not, not, not just indispensable, they're absolutely necessary. Um, and I find that an untenable claim. And you, of course, you can also get very sort of liberal approaches which say, oh, whatever you want, it doesn't matter. And, and that I think is also uh, problematic because that doesn't acknowledge the indispensability of these images uh, like we've been talking about. And, and so I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not gonna come to a conclusion here. I'm trying to say that I find, Plato, I find Plato and especially Schindler's discussion of Plato helpful to see people like Plato and, and, the, and the figures in his dialogue resting very deeply with this sort of Janus-faced role of images. They're, they're, they're inadequate, right? Uh, but they're indispensable and they're, they, they're bound up with love and reason and how both love and reason are ecstatic. Like the people who want to, they have to love their future self ecstatically so that they can reason beyond their current egocentric perspective and save the money for the future. Like, and like, I don't have, I wish I could now say, and so here is the Vervakian profound thing that comes out of that. I don't have anything to say other than I find, I, I, I'm finding that going on this journey within the text or in discussion with people like you, I think it, it the, the exemplification of it is starting to bring some finesse uh, to my ability to interact and discuss in good faith people who belong to, you know, religious communities or or, or uh, elsewise that are otherwise uh, otherwise I can't I can't belong. Um, so I, I I guess this was a very convoluted way of saying I really appreciate you know you bringing this up and that we talk about it and wrestle with it. And that we aren't coming to any final conclusions, because again, I think it's more of how we are like the apprentices. We keep we keep wrestling, and now I'm almost doing like a martial art. The more we wrestle with it, the more finesse we get in our ability to wrestle with it. Um, yeah, no, that I'm, makes that makes a lot of sense, and um, you know, it seems like if people could get to the understanding, I guess it's a platonic understanding that. As you said, these images, they are indispensable, but they're also provisional. Yes. Right? They're yes. always, yes. I don't know, subject to change, I guess, to some extent. But there's yes. also, yes. Um, I don't know, that's a tricky one. Sorry, sorry, John. <laughs> Wish no, I had no, some, no, some I, wasn't, answer. <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. I, I think the, the, I think hopefully we exemplified the answer to that much more than we can put a definition on it. Yes. Um, and, and, and to the degree to which um, you've afforded that, I, I just wanted to end uh, by thanking you. And this has been a wonderful journey together. I oh. hope it has whetted people's appetite for reading the Schindler book and perhaps even thereafter reading The Republic. Well, I can say for sure you have the best reading recommendations of anyone I've met on this earth. So thank you so far for that. I do just want to go ahead and spoil the very ending of the book by reading the last passage. Oh, oh please, please. Schindler writes, it is to carry and carry out the delightful burden of philosophy, the task implied in the exhortation that brings the Republic to a close. Uh, and there's a Greek word there, a Greek phrase I can't pronounce or read. 
This yeah. verb means not only to be happy, i.e. to possess the good, but also to do it, to live it out in a concrete way and thus make it real. In the first word of the dialogue, if the first word of the dialogue seems to point to Plato, then this final word takes away all seeming. It is the word Plato always used to begin his personal letters, at least those addressed to his friends, those to whom he was bound in goodness. Yeah, great ending to a great book. So good. Um, and thank you for being uh, my friend on this journey. And I've yes. learned a lot. I hope everyone found this valuable and learned a lot as well. And um, I'm excited to go further. You know, I'm, I already told you I've devoured the first two books you've recommended. I've got a list of probably 10 more. So I look forward to reading those and bombarding you with questions. Yeah, uh, yeah this was such a wonderful thing. At some point, if you want to go through another text in this way, I'd be happy to journey with you. Wonderful. John, thank you so much. Really appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much, Robert. It has been a great pleasure. Likewise. Mm -hmm.